I'm Jesse. And I'm Josh. And this is Slice by Slice, a podcast where we dissect and discuss horror films by categories and subgenres, such as demons, dolls, franchises, and directors' bodies of work. And of course, we can't dissect and discuss these films in the detail we do without spoilers. So we're doing an episode on dolls, huh? Yeah. I never thought it'd come to this. Well, you know, Child's Play is a very popular franchise. (laughs) Oh, we could have gone that route, couldn't we? No, we're not doing child's play. <laughs> oh, my notes are going to be wrong. <laughs> <laughs> that one's upcoming, though. I bought the uh, Blu-ray set last year to prep for. I assume we'll hit it this year, but we'll just have to see. Sweet. But this is episode 59. We're recovering the Annabelle trilogy, and we are recording it on 4 21 And I'm going to warn you, this is going to be a long one, guys. Yeah. Yeah. They're all long. Let's just be honest. <laughs> That's our shtick. But this one's three movies instead of two, so I don't know to be honest, I was actually a little concerned going into the franchise because I had never seen any of the Annabelles other than seeing her pop up in The Conjuring, and I was pleasantly surprised by the end and glad we did it, so it'll be a fun one. I noticed that we actually owned two of them, so I was like, yeah, they must be all right. (laughs) (laughs) And you saw one of them in theaters at least, right? Yes. But before we dive into Annabelle, I guess we should do the... uh, housekeeping stuff so news i'm going to try to make it quick because this is going to be a long one i don't know what order i have this in so we're just going to go with it (laughs) there's a teaser for the last season of dexter man the twitter replies on that are brutal (laughs) (laughs) and it's definitely just a tease because it's just a voiceover with them slamming the lumberjack axe in the tree stump but i feel like that was kind of a joke to say fuck you to the ending of the original one so yeah, it doesn't matter what, I'm going to watch it. I was tardy to the party on the show, and it, but I binged all of it, and even I agreed the last season was a wet fart. Give me something else. Right. The last season wasn't great, but it was okay. It was just like the last five or ten minutes that killed it for me. Yeah. Moving on, the trailer for Conjuring 3, The Devil Made Me Do It, came out, and it looks kind of badass. <laughs> I uh, finally watched the full thing today, and... uh Like halfway through the trailer, I'm like, eh, I'll wait. And then by the time I got to the end of the trailer, I was like, I'll go see it in theater. (laughs) (laughs) You knew you weren't going to wait. You love those fucking movies. (laughs) The reception online is kind of like all over the place because just like the rest of the Conjuring movies, people either love them or think they're like shitty fake horror movies. Yeah. Or they refuse to watch them because they hate the Warrens, like the real Warrens. Nobody hates the Warrens in the movies, though, because they're badass. (laughs) Another cool trailer was the full trailer of Zack Snyder's Army of the Dead. I don't think I've watched that. It's pretty cool because have you seen any of the teasers? Yeah. Yeah, you know, the teasers are basically just Batista running around shooting zombies with a machine gun. Pretty much. And uh, this one shows plot elements and there's a lot more going on. I think it it looks pretty cool. We'll just have to see how it goes. But that comes out, shit, it might be, well, it's not next week, but it's in the next couple of weeks. Okay. Mindhunter might actually get a third season. Oh, really? Yes, he says he's he's thinking about doing it. He just really wanted to make that movie Mank, and it postponed season three of Mindhunter, and the actors and actresses became less available because they had scheduled assuming they were doing Mindhunter season three in a certain window. But I guess enough time's passed and, you know, COVID that they might can actually all get together. So it'd be cool if they do one more season knowing it's the last one and just wrap up the storyline. Yep, I'm totally fine with that. Hopping over to video games, Dead by Daylight made an announcement, and they're doing a Resident Evil DLC. <laughs> I'm assuming the killer is going to be the tyrant. Eh? 
Probably. Or Nemesis or whatever the fuck you call them, you know, depending on which game. Yeah. Or it could be the uh, nine foot tall vampire chick from the new one. But I, I just feel like they're <laughs> not going to do somebody that nobody knows anything about yet as the killer. And then I would assume the survivor is going to be Jill, but I guess it could be Chris. Yeah. It could be somebody from one of the other games as well, but I just feel like they're going to go OG on it. I don't know. Just a feeling. <laughs> no actual facts. And for our last bit of news, I'm going to go over the 2021 Fangoria Chainsaw Awards because we've kind of had a tradition in doing that, even though I feel like I'm a little late on this one, but <laughs> it's just when it happened versus when we recorded. So it's a little delayed. But best wide release went to The Invisible Man. Eh. I mean, I like the movie. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. I, well, as I saw a lot of people say online, that just shows you how little stuff came out because of COVID. Yeah. Best limited release went to Color Out of Space, which I haven't watched yet, but I hear great things. Oh, really? I'm saving it for the Lovecraft episode. Ah. I'm actually saving quite a few movies for <laughs> the Lovecraft episode. So, <laughs> Best international film was Lilo. Ah, I never can say it. Help me here, Josh. I thought it was just Lilo Rona. There you go. Thank you. <laughs> After editing, you guys are probably just going to hear me ask Josh for help, but I could not say that word, but it got Best International Film. Best first feature went to Come to Daddy, which I know Elijah Wood's in it, but I feel like he directed it too. Somebody correct me if I'm wrong. Best director went to Lee Winnell for The Invisible Man. Oh, wow. Yep. Best TV series went to What We Do in the Shadows. Hell yeah. <laughs> I thought you'd like that one. Best streaming premiere went to Host, which if that's the one where they're on the Zoom call doing the seance and shit, that movie was awesome. Yeah, that that's... Hell yeah, again, that movie is really getting legs now. Like, there's a section for it at Walmart and shit. Ah, oh, that movie was fun. <laughs> yeah, I really enjoyed it, and I was angry at myself for not coming up with that idea during uh, lockdown. Yeah. But, you know, <laughs> some people are just cooler than me. <laughs> Speaking of which, this guy's having a really good day. Best screenplay went to Lee Winnell for <laughs> The Invisible Man. Best creature effects went to Dan Martin for Color Out of Space. Okay. Best makeup effects went to Dan Martin for Possessor. Best score went to Jim Williams for Possessor. I wonder if he's related to John Williams, a Star Wars fan. <laughs> oh, he's got to get that a lot, right? Yeah. Best supporting performance went to Clancy Brown for the Mortuary Collection. Oh, okay. I haven't seen it yet, but I'm a huge Clancy Brown fan. So best lead performance went to Elizabeth Moss for The Invisible Man. God, it really swept the Chainsaw Awards. No didn't shit. It? Best kill, the Invisible Man dinner scene. It's good. <laughs> it's a pretty good kill. That's the thing. It's not a bad movie at all. Like, I feel like I should watch it again. Like, I watched it, and I was like, oh, that was a pretty good slasher flick, and I just <laughs> never thought about it again. Yep. And uh, I think it was Dark Times when that came out on streaming, so maybe I should watch it again <laughs> with new eyes. And for the final award, the achievement in nonfiction went to The Last Drive-In with Joe Bob Briggs. Oh, wow. Hell yeah. <laughs> but that's it for the Chainsaw Awards, so we'll have to uh, see how it goes next year. Usually we have an episode where we go over the categories and talk about it, I feel like, or we maybe we consider it and not do it, but we'll try to make sure we do that next year. As far as announcements go, the next episode is most likely going to be a week late. We're probably going to go three weeks instead of two weeks on this one because we're going to need some extra prep time for it. Say what? And as far as updates and corrections go, I only have two of them. One of them was Laura Lizzie in The Craft was played by Christine Taylor, who played oh. Melody on Hey Dude. We couldn't remember her name, and I kept saying, I swear it's Melody. You were half right. So, 
And for our second update, we actually had this brought to us from a user on our Instagram. I didn't ask permission to say their name, so I'm not going to do that at this time. But this user wanted to comment on the Charmed being a craft ripoff and actually wanted to point out that they actually wrote a pilot and gave it to Warner Brothers or CW because they kind of changed names somewhere in there and they passed on it. And then the craft got really popular and they decided they wanted to make the witch show now and everybody from the craft was busy and then kind of made their own thing. Oh, kind of funny how that happens in Hollywood land. Yeah, but they had a written pilot and it uses the same theme song. So yeah, <laughs> most likely was stolen and it wasn't so much that we said something wrong on the last episode, but we, we didn't actually have that detail. Yeah. So thank you for that. And everybody send more little tidbits if you have them for us to, to add to uh, this section. Yeah. I really get off on our shortcomings being pointed out. <laughs> <laughs> And as far as what we watched, let's see. I finished Falcon Winter Soldier. That's it for my non-horror stuff. <laughs> it was good, though. I'm staying up to date on season two of Creep Show, and it's been really good so far. Yeah. Some of the episodes only like one of the two segments, but. That's how I was for episode four. <laughs> but either way, it's been a fun ride. So I'm going to keep going on with this one. So I bet we only have a few episodes left. Probably. But I had a horror night with my buddy David, since we can only do those like quarterly now having kids and all. And we watched three movies instead of two this time. And two of them I'd seen before, but I wanted him to see them. And that was uncle Peckerhead and Jennifer's body. Right. <laughs> so he liked both of those, but the new one to us was scare package. Yeah. You finally got to see it. Yes. And it was so good. Like it's so bad and good at the same time. Uh -huh. I love how it was like an homage and a parody at the same time of horror instead of being its own thing. And most times, and the stories were all just like really creative and I, I enjoyed it a lot. Nice. And the last thing that I recall watching, because I had to work a lot this week, was the new Mortal Kombat movie that came out Friday. Oh, sweet. I watched that last night. I'm glad we both seen it. Yeah, it was, uh, I enjoyed it. I mean, I'm not going to say it was this great, awesome movie. I liked it more than the Monster Hunter movie, which I liked Monster Hunter, but it was kind of in that same vein where it was just like a bunch of stuff happening that was cool to watch, but not necessarily greatness, but it did have a lot more story yeah. in it than most other Mortal Kombat things have been. And it was actually a pretty good story. And the cast was great on this one. And they had a lot of actual martial artists so that helped a lot. Love Kano, crazy Australian ass. Yeah, dude. <laughs> Kano so makes the fucking movie. Yeah, I think I said Kano, but it's Kano, right? Yeah. It was a fun movie. It's a lot of fights for the most part. There's a shit ton of gore in it. Yeah. Pretty sure a good bit of the blood was CGI, but if it was, it's some of the best CGI blood I've ever seen. Like it was like a, a stylized art type the way they did it. Yeah. The blood was better than Goro. That's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I agree with you there. And it does have a bunch of monsters in it. So technically it's walking that horror realm and, and James Wan produced it. So it's yep. an atomic monster film. Yep. I'm hoping it, at least breaks even because when I checked the numbers on it, the budget was about 15 million higher than I expected it to be. And the numbers <laughs> that are already out aren't looking good. <laughs> so I actually looked right before you hopped in the meat and it made like 31 million domestically and global numbers aren't in yet for some reason. Okay. As of an hour ago. So I bet they probably made their budget back this weekend. I hope so, because they're trying, the way it ends, they're trying to set up an MKCU, it looks like, and uh, <laughs> I'm okay with that, because yeah, 
for all its faults, I'm okay with this. I am okay with continuing the story from here. Not from there annihilation. There's a lot of fanfare in there to throw in like fatality and flawless victory that was almost too much, but they did it pretty well. But they're only almost too much because the movie was done like really grounded compared to the the ones in the past. Yeah. And then it had those random sayings in it, but I guess they just had to have them in there, right? Exactly. I bet the movie did really well overseas just because there's so many famous Asian actors in it. Yeah, probably. So what'd you watch? Well, obviously, Mortal Kombat and uh, Creepshow. We also, <laughs> so we finished season one of Resident Alien, and it goes exactly where you think it's going to go, and it's still fun, and it's sci-fi, so we'll see if it gets a second season or not. <laughs> Got to watch History of Horror 2. That was fun. Okay. I fell asleep towards the end. <laughs> and uh, we watched uh, Unhinged, the uh, okay Russell Crowe as a angry southern white man um (laughs) but have you seen the trailer for that do you know anything about it Uh uh-uh i've heard about it but i don't know anything about it i don't want to give any of it away but just that person that you honk at that refuses to go through the light you never know how bad of a day they've actually had and the things (laughs) they've already done that day and the night before that have put them in a certain mood now living in the city we live live in we're used to not honking or flipping birds but uh this guy takes it to the next level it wasn't bad is it like that uh michael douglas movie oh god what's it called falling down glasses and he wants the pepsi or whatever yeah yeah yeah. (laughs) falling down fucking mcdonald's won't serve him breakfast (laughs) yeah is it like that because that's what you're making it sound like yeah okay okay just not as good and uh that's it I have to tell the story just because of the episode that we're covering here. But Josh and I just took a break to get some water and whatnot. And I went downstairs and my kids were there. My daughter wouldn't have let me know that she saw one of the chairs in my office just start rocking by itself. (laughs) (laughs) And I promise I did not let my six-year-old watch any Annabelle movies with me. You need to set up some cameras, sir. (laughs) But before we dive into the Annabelle movies, I want to do a little bit of backstory. And unlike most things we cover, there's actually two backstories here. We have the real Annabelle story, and we have the conjuring Annabelle appearances that set up this trilogy, right? Yep. Annabelle was an actual doll that Ed and Lorraine Warren actually acquired and locked in a glass case covered with many warnings, the Lord's Prayer, and St. Michael's Prayer. However, it was a Raggedy Ann doll and not a creepy fucking porcelain doll glass eyes that should be destroyed upon sight (laughs) see now in real life raggedy ann's more creepy (laughs) i've always thought they were creepy too but my nursery was raggedy ann and raggedy andy and i had dolls and shit of them all around the house as a kid growing up that was left over from said nursery and i think i was actually raggedy andy for my first halloween it gets confusing because sometimes my mom says I was Dracula for my first Halloween and the other time she says I was Raggedy Andy. So I'm assuming <laughs> one of them was like first Halloween and then the other one was like one-year-old Halloween or something maybe. I don't know. Or you were a vampire Raggedy Andy. That is terrifying. <laughs> but the actual doll was supposedly gifted to a young nurse named Donna from her mother for her birthday. And she kept it in her apartment that she shared with another nurse named Angie and her fiance Lou. And they would find the doll in different parts of their house from where they had left it. And they would find it behind doors that were left open. And then they're closed now or doors they closed that were open and the doll's in there. And they would find notes that said, help me 
throughout the house and they were written on parchment paper, which they didn't even own in the house, supposedly. Like, so this paper just materialized out of thin air. Huh. And the women eventually had a medium come over to see if she could do anything. And she told them that the doll was inhabited by the spirit of a seven-year-old girl named Annabelle Higgins, whose body had been found a long time ago on the property where the apartments are now built before they were there. And the medium said that the spirit was benevolent and just wanted to be loved and cared for. So the girls told the spirit it could live in the doll and they'd take care of it out of pity for it. They felt bad for this little girl's spirit, right? Shortly afterwards, Angie's boyfriend, Lou, was supposedly attacked by it and had bloody marks on him that had a particular shape. I don't remember what it was. And they vanished after a few days, the story goes. And at this point, they decided to call the church, who sent a priest over, and the priest heard their story and called the Warrens over to investigate. And the Warrens believed that there was a demonic presence and had a priest perform an exorcism, and then they took the doll and locked it away in their occult museum, right? Yep. Lorraine had said that spirits don't possess objects, they possess people, and they think the spirit was manipulating the doll for pity, which they gave it, and that made the situation worse. And they think it wanted a human host, so basically wanted somebody to give up their soul so they could take the body, right? And the Warrens believe it was demonic and not a ghost because it had teleportation, materialization, and the mark of the beast, like the mark it put on the guy when it scratched him. So those were three signs to make it demonic and not spiritual. Oh, nice. The Warrens supposedly kept having car trouble on the way to their house with the doll in the back seat and almost got into an accident because the brake stopped working until Ed reached back and doused it with holy water and a prayer as the story goes. And I keep saying it this way because some people hate the real Warrens and some people like them. Some people call them charlatans and scam artists. Some people think they're actually demonologists. Make of that what you will, but these are the facts as presented by books, usually from the Warrens, unfortunately, but (laughs) you don't have a lot of sources on it, but this is how the story goes. I'm just going to say, why didn't they have that bitch in the trunk? (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. And... A man supposedly died in a motorcycle accident leaving the museum one time because he taunted the doll and made fun of it. And supposedly a priest had once held the doll and said that he didn't think it was actually demonic and it was a hoax and he was in a near fatal crash as soon as he left. And he said that he saw the doll in his rearview mirror right before having the accident. Yep. And Ed Warren has told this version of the story in one book in a modified version in a video tour he did at the museum one time. On the video tour, he said that the girl was six and not seven, and that she had died in a car accident in front of the apartment, and that the doll was a Christmas present for Donna and not a birthday present. Uh, So, taking that effect, Ed's told two versions of the story. So It's Amityville all over again. All right. But, like I said earlier, a lot of people doubt the Warrens, and neither the nurses or the priest have ever come forward, and the name of the guy who died was never released. The Warrens are the only account of any of this story. Yeah. Oh, well, source material. (laughs) Man, they took that and went with it. We got some awesome movie franchises out of it. (laughs) And even though both the Warrens have passed away, the doll is still located in their occult museum, which is ran by Tony Spera, their son-in-law, who married their daughter, Judy. And he is a trained demonologist by Ed himself. So, And I have a funny story to share about him that I'll save for the end of the episode. Okay, okay. And I've only seen a couple of videos with him, and I don't know. I, I kind of feel like he's a guy trying to sell me, like, a pillow or a coin collection or something on TV. 
even when he did his live Instagram thing on, yes, I know you all have heard stories of the dolls escaped, but it's very much still here behind me. And I'm like, I never heard it escaped. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's just like infomercials. Hey, fuck it. <laughs> <laughs> and I hear that you can't even actually go into the museum right now. Not because of COVID. This was before COVID, but because of zoning issues, I guess they can't have patrons in it because it's a house. Yep. It's been closed because of that for a while. And that covers the the quote-unquote real Annabelle story. So now we'll go with the Conjuring franchise background. In the films, we first see Annabelle at the very beginning of the original Conjuring film as Ed and Lorraine are interviewing the nurses and Lou. And the nurses give their account of the story, and we see it through a series of flashbacks until the Warrens believe them and take the doll. And this was the last case they worked before the family in the Conjuring movie, like the, the main story there. Yep. And all of that pretty much goes like the actual story is told by Ed Warren. So they did that pretty much scene for scene. But I don't know if they were putting that in there just to have a pre-story before going into the main story for the first film. Or if James Wan like really had the hindsight to plant that seed for a spinoff franchise. Who knows? Yeah. But we also saw the doll in the Conjuring movie attacking Judy in a scene as well. Like the doll had escaped, I think, or they thought it escaped. I don't remember because I haven't seen the Conjuring movies in a while. But that was the other time she popped up. Okay. And then she's been seen in a couple other movies that had things to do with, with James Wan or the writers. Like, she's at the bottom of the Mariana Trench in Aquaman. Oh, really? It's <laughs> like at the bottom, yeah. And then she's on the shelf in Shazam. And I can't remember who made Shazam and what they had to do with uh, Annabelle. But I think it was like the writer or something. I can't remember. But Annabelle's popped up in both. But now that I'm done with the backstory, I guess it's time to dive into this first film of three. Before this episode's nine hours long. <laughs> so Annabelle 2014 was directed by John R. Leonetti, and he had directed Child's Play 3. So he had worked on a creepy doll movie before. The Scorpion King. Oh. I Know Who Killed Me. And Piranha 3D, which <laughs> there's not very many heavy hitters in there. <laughs> but Piranha 3D has some redeeming fucking scenes at least. Oh, it does it? I've never seen it. But he was also director of photography on a metric shit ton of movies, including some heavy hitters. So you could go to his IMDb to check that out. But I would say he's more known for that than being a director. The movie was written by Gary Doberman, who wrote Within, Wolves at the Door, Annabelle Creation, It 1 and 2, The Nun, Most of the Swamp Thing Show, and Are You Afraid of the Dark? Yeah, that guy. <laughs> so he's been around the block a lot, and uh, especially in the Atomic Monster James Wan universe. Yep. And the cast, oh my God, let's go with our star here. Annabelle Wallace playing Mia. What a coincidence. <laughs> but she's going to be a malignant James Wan's slasher slash, well, that's really weird to say, slasher slash Jalo flick that's coming out soon. She was in Boss Level recently. She was a main character on Peaky Blinders. She was on Tag. She was in the new Mummy movie, and I remember her from the Tudors because she okay. was on at least the original season of that. Ward Horton plays John, and he's been on just a shit ton of TV from what I saw, but nothing jumped out. Tony Amendola plays Father Perez, and he's in so many genre movies and has so many voice credits that you're just going to have to look him up. <laughs> like He's done a lot of shit. Like You'll know him when you see him, and then when you see how many cartoons and video games he's lended his voice to, it's just insane. But okay. I did want to point out that he is playing the same character that he plays in The Curse of La La Rona. 
Holy shit, did I say it? Oh, yeah. Yes, you did. Congratulations. And yeah, I forgot about that. I, I read something about that. I was like, you know, technically, if you want to say how big the Conjuring universe really is, you can throw La La Rona in there. Well, that's a Atomic Monster movie, too. I'm pretty sure James Wan likes sneak shit in there no matter what, right? Yeah. And our last character that I'm going to say is Evelyn, played by Alfre Woodard, who has been in so much shit, but... She was in Luke Cage, True Blood, 12 Years a Slave, Desperate Housewives, Captain America Civil War with a very quick emotional scene, and Star Trek First Contact back in the day. Oh, damn. And I didn't see anything jump out like, oh, this famous company made the doll or did the visual effects, but I do want to say the movie was produced by James Wan, who created <laughs> the universe. And as we go into the movie, I just want to start this off saying that the Conjuring movies were based off of supposed true events and even say so. This movie, however, is completely fictional and they wanted to make up a story of somebody owning the doll before the nurses had it, right? So they're taking the doll, which is supposedly demonic, and giving it a, a prequel, basically. Yeah. <laughs> and this movie has a shit ton of Rosemary's Baby throwbacks in it. Yeah, it I'm does. not even going to mention them as I go, but they're in an apartment building almost the same way. There's a cult. The parents' names are John and Mia, which are the main characters in Rosemary's <laughs> Baby. The stroller's identical. Yeah. The neighbor's name is Leah, which is the baby's name. And there's just so much more. But that's the main ones right there. But we open up with a black screen with a creepy red font that says, Since the beginning of civilization, dolls have been beloved by children, cherished by collectors, and used in religious rites as conduits for good and evil. Dun, dun, dun. But we open up where The Conjuring verse started with Ed and Lorraine Warren getting the Annabelle doll from a pair of scared roommates. And I just want to say that I'm going to say Annabelle or Annabelle Higgins when I'm talking about a person usually. And I'm going to say the Annabelle doll when I'm talking about a doll because it's going to get confusing. <laughs> but the nurses explain the odd occurrences of the doll. And one of them explains how she received the doll as a gift from her mom and has no clue where she got it from. And then a medium told them that it was possessed by the spirit of a girl named Annabelle Higgins. Title card. And when we get the title card, it's in front of a black demon head statue. Foreshadowing. Hell yeah, it is. <laughs> we then pop to Santa Monica, California, one year earlier. And we see a young couple thumb wrestling during mass as an older couple watches and smiles. And after mass, the older man approaches the couple to see who won the thumb wrestling match. <laughs> And we can see that Mia is very pregnant. Ready to drop. Yeah, yeah. But his wife is absent, and we find out that she's off praying, and he tells Mia that he thinks she might just run off one day, too. So it's a little ominous. We'll get it explained in a bit, but that's just supposed to set something up there. Yep. The older couple are the Higgins family, and they live next door to Mia and John. And after discussion in the front yard, the Higgins go inside and we find out from Mia and John that they had a daughter that ran away. Right. And he's making jokes about her joining the circus or something. Right. If only. <laughs> and, exactly. <laughs> and as they're walking into the house, Mia gets on to John for leaving the door unlocked. And he's like, hey, this is the burbs. It's safe here. And she's like, no, I want the fucking door locked. Later that evening, we see John studying for a test. It's a medical exam. You could tell if you look at the books. And Mia is sewing while watching a Manson family documentary. And she's scaring the shit out of me the whole time because her fingers are just going closer and closer to the needle in the sewing machine while she's watching TV and not the, the sewing machine. And you're just waiting for it to get her finger. And it doesn't. But the tension's built there. Oh, yeah. It's, I love And they do it again. And I love it. <laughs> 
At this point, we find out that John's preparing for his medical residency, and he's not a smooth talker at all. (laughs) He upsets his wife, and she heads to the nursery that's full of dolls, like wall-to-wall, to to lay down the blanket she just made on the sewing machine. And John comes in and apologizes for the incident earlier and tries to make up for it by giving her a gift. And she reminds him what happened last time he said he had a gift for her. Oh, no, the last time you said that, I ended up pregnant. Yes, you did. He then hands her the creepiest-looking doll ever made, and I want to point out that the doll is clean and not as creepy looking as it is in the Conjuring movies at this point, but still fucking creepy. And if you really pay attention, the scene was edited where you can't see it as well. But in the behind the scenes, you can clearly see that the box said Raven's Fair on it. Ah. Which is the mannequin shop, right? From um, Dead Silence. Yes. I guess that kind of gets retcon later. It does. Or that's just where he bought it from. Right? Yeah, it like could have changed time, hands. It got by resold. That point. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it would have changed hands, right? Yeah. Several. But apparently, she's into creepy dolls because she's really been looking for this one, and it finishes out her set that she has, and she says it's very rare. You might even say it was one out of a hundred, and they never made the other ninety-nine. Hey. <laughs> Foreshadowing. <laughs> <laughs> that's just spoiler territory, right there. <laughs> it is. <laughs> But we can see John and Mia sleeping as the camera pans through their house to the open window where we can see the Higgins turn on their light really quickly and are apparently freaked out. And we see Mrs. Higgins pick up the phone to make a call as Mr. Higgins walks out of frame. And then it just gets eerily quiet until we get a sting and blood sprays all across the wall and Miss Higgins screams and the lights go out. But Mia wakes up from the scream. Good stuff. Yeah, it's done really well, and the silence there makes it even creepier. Yep. But Mia wakes up John and tells him what she heard, and he wants to go check out their house, and he doesn't want her to call the cops in case she's wrong, and it'd be kind of embarrassing because she thinks she heard the scream, right? And he heads over to the neighbor's house. When he leaves, you get this angle of him talking in front of the door, and he's just holding the doorknob. And you just know with the camera angle when he opens it, somebody's going to be standing there. But they're not. Yeah. So they just build all this false tension. Mia gets nervous and impatient and starts to walk towards the neighbor's house. And John runs out covered in blood and lets her know that it's not his blood, but she needs to go call an ambulance, right? She runs inside the home and grabs her phone. And in the background, we can see a woman walk by in a white gown. And she doesn't notice it, right? And she hangs up the phone after getting a hold of the, the first responders and getting them on the way and heads into her room. And as she walks past the nursery, we can see a creepy woman come out of the nursery behind her holding the doll, right? The Annabelle doll. Yep. And Mia does not know she's there until she hears a woman's creepy voice. I like your dolls. A man then comes in from behind Mia and stabs her in her pregnant stomach, and she collapses as John runs in and tackles the man and starts to beat the shit out of him. The woman comes running in with a knife, and he dives off the man and tackles her into a wall and starts to fight her off, too, until they both fall over to the ground, and she runs off into the nursery, slamming the door. The man stands up and charges at Mia as two policemen come around the corner and pop two into his chest and drop him, and he's gone, right? (laughs) And John tries to check on his wife as the police kick the door open into the nursery. And the sound's, like, all fucked up in the scene. Like, it's just, like, you can't really tell what's going on. And I think it's because you're supposed to be hearing it from Mia's perspective, right? Exactly. We then cut to Mia being rolled out on a gurney by the paramedics, and she looks into the nursery as they go by, and she can see that the woman's dead against the wall with her throat slit and the doll's in her lap, and there's a strange symbol drawn on the wall in blood. And we see that some of the blood drips off of her throat 
onto the doll's face at the eye socket and the eye socket like basically sucks the blood in, right? It doesn't naturally run in there. Yep. We then cut to this like really cool like news montage and on the newscast, they explained that Annabelle Higgins had joined a cult and came back and murdered her parents, right? Like, that's all they're saying on the news. So that was Annabelle Higgins, the missing daughter, killing her parents, which is kind of fucked up. <laughs> kind of, huh? <laughs> Quite a bit, actually. <laughs> we then get to Mia in the emergency room, and the doctor says that the baby's fine, but there was some internal damage, and she's going to have to be on bed rest for the rest of the pregnancy, right? And she's only supposed to get up to go to the bathroom. John takes her home and she makes goddamn sure that he locks the door this time. <laughs> and the nursery has been sterilized, we found out. It's completely clean now. And the doll is placed on the shelf, right? So they were at least nice enough to put the creepy fucking doll back. That was, I was going to say covered in blood, but I guess it fucking sucked the blood down like me with a root beer float. <laughs> but the room really freaks Mia out. So she shuts the door, right? Like she doesn't want to see in there. John wheels the TV in for Mia and tells her, Nuts right her brain watching soaps, which she gets a little defensive on and says she hates soaps. <laughs> and he lets her know that he's going to bring all of her sewing stuff in there so that she can make her very own sweatshop, right? <laughs> <laughs> These Nike shoes are going to make themselves. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> Mia lets John know that she's worried and that if something happens when she goes into labor, his job is to save the baby and not her. She's quite adamant about it and makes some promise that he will save the baby no matter what. A little bit of foreshadowing there, right? No. That night, just past the witching hour, we get a pan through their house, and we hear the the Toby rumble, as I call it on the podcast, <laughs> in the nursery until the mobile starts spinning over the crib, right? Nope. We cut to the couple sleeping as we hear the sewing machine kick on, and this wakes up both of them, and John's prepared this time because he's got a Louis Slugger next to the fucking bed, <laughs> and he goes running through the house to investigate, and he can't find anything except for the sewing machine, so he just... Turns it off and writes it off as a fluke, right? Yeah. On his way back to the bedroom, he finds the nursery door open and the doll on the floor blocking the door. So he picks the doll up, puts it on the rocking chair, and closes the door. He's really not thinking about it. <laughs> <laughs> the next morning, we see Mia sewing and getting pissed because her soaps are fucking up. And she chunks a book at the TV, accidentally turning it off. And then she hears the uh, rocking chair creaking in the other room and goes to investigate. And it's really funny because she's like, I don't watch soaps. And then. Yep. She's watching General Hospital for like the rest of the movie. <laughs> oh, totally. But she approaches the nursery and finds the goddamn door open and the doll sitting in the chair, but the chair's not rocking. We actually got to see the chair rocking and saw it instantly stop as she cut into the doorway, but she never actually saw it moving. Yeah. But John comes home with pregnancy snacks for his wife, which she says she doesn't get weird cravings like other pregnant women. <gasps> Pickles. Pickles dipped in mustard is a snack. I think I'm going to have to check this out. I, I asked the wife, I was like, is there something that happens to pregnant women where they're like, this baby needs vinegar? I think they just get weird cravings. <sighs> However, I was more pumped about the Jiffy Pop and the Taco Bell Doritos. <laughs> I grab those every time they're out limited at the grocery store. I'm like, ooh, Taco Bell Doritos. Oh, dude, the, the Taco Doritos are actually in our cabinet right now. And uh, they're in the retro packaging. And when it got to that part, the wife immediately Googled it. And do you know the history of Doritos flavors? Because we were like, there's no way those were out then. No, but I do know I've only seen that in the retro bag. That's because it was the first flavored Dorito. So the original Doritos were okay. just plain. Taco was the first one. Nacho cheese, the okay. third one. Yeah. I was like, did that shit exist then? The wife's like, 
She's like, oh, here's the history <laughs> of the flavor of Doritos. <laughs> and they don't taste anything like Taco Bell, but they taste like deliciousness. Yeah, yeah. They, they taste like like uh, old El Paso fucking taco seasoning. <laughs> <laughs> it's probably what it is. Anyways, John lets his wife know that he's got a great shot at a hospital, but they might have to move. It's going to be a little bit further away from the beach, unfortunately. And he also lets her know that the detective wants to come by and see him. And she says that she wants to put the whole thing behind him and, and not talk to the detective, but they have to, right? Yeah. As they walk down the hall, we can see that the nursery door is open again and the doll slumped over in the rocking chair. And she tells him she wants him to trash the doll, which he does. He goes outside and puts it in the bin. We see him do it, right? Yep. And then he hears, in the garden, and he looks through the window. Oh, wait, wrong movie. (laughs) We then cut to the conversation with the detective, and she wants to know if the cult was satanic or not. And she seems to want to know more than she was acting like, you know, before the cop got there. And the detective says he'll do some digging for her, and she's like, you know what? Just don't worry about it, right? Like, so her curiosity was peaking, but she still wants to put it past her. Yep. And she lets them know she doesn't want to hear anything about it unless it involves their safety, right? That night, John adjusts the rabbit ears to get her variety show working, and he goes to make her some Jiffy Pop at her request. After starting the stove, he finds her passed out in the bed, and he goes and turns the the stove off, leaving the tasty snack in place, right, (laughs) on the eye. It hadn't started to pop yet. The next day, we see Mia sewing and getting her fingers too close to that goddamn needle again while watching General Hospital and not paying attention. As this is going on, we see someone cut the stove on and the Jiffy Pop starting to pop. And by someone, I mean, like, you hear the eyes click and you just see the the last one, like, turning. Nobody's in frame doing it. Yeah. Yeah. Just the every damn thing on the stove comes on. Right. The whole time she's sewing, you just know she's going to get her finger just like earlier. And they tease it and they tease it and it never happens. <laughs> just until you think they're done doing it. And then whack. She gets her finger and she goes to treat the wound and starts to smell something burning. She runs and finds the kitchen ablaze and tries to run out and trips falling on her pregnant stomach, right? She tries to crawl away and is yanked back by an invisible force until we can see help bust in the door and save her. So they weren't like first responders. The neighbors saw the fire or the smoke or something came in and got her. Yeah. We cut to John rushing into the hospital to check on his wife, and he finds out that she is fine and that their daughter was born. And we can see that the nurse holding the baby that hands it off to John is the nurse from the beginning of the movie that had the Annabelle doll. Ah, didn't catch that. I don't know if that's a tie-in that we needed, but they did it. Mia lets him know that something was up with the fire, and she feels like the house was cursed, and they need to move. Yeah. So we cut to Pasadena, California, where they've got their new apartment. I guess John got the residency he was talking about, right? (laughs) We get a pan through the new place, and we can see Mia and the baby playing as the neighbors upstairs stomp about, and she can call out every move they're going to make to John, right? And he's like, we got to get you out of the house like, <laughs> you're here too much. And they head off to mass and we can see a neighbor watching them as they walk by, which is going to be Evelyn. We find out later. Yeah. At mass, the baby's making some noises. So she takes her outside. Father Perez comes out to see Mia and he wants to take a photo of Leah, their daughter. And he wants her in the photo as well, but he says he likes to have a photo of all the new parishioners of the church. Right. And he tries to talk about the Higgins and she just cuts him off and says, Oh, there's John. I got to go. Right. Like she doesn't want to talk anything about that event. Exactly. Back at home, he is unpacking all of her dolls and finds one that should not be there. The creepy fucker is returned. John comes in and he's very confused because he knows he trashed the doll. And Mia's like, you know what? It's just a doll. I want to keep it. Right. And she thinks that someone must have grabbed it like out of the bin when they're collecting stuff from like the burned rubble for him. Right. Yeah, sure. 
But we get a preview of their new big city life now that they're out of the suburbs, and we can see that Mia and the baby nap a lot while watching General Hospital. And on one of these occasions, the TV cuts to static and goes out as we can see the woman in white walk in the background in a, in a back room from left of frame to right of frame, right? Yep. And then she pops out in the room they're in from right of frame walking left to the uh, bassinet where the baby's sleeping, right? It's really cool how they did that. Yeah. Like, it's a really cool shot. I don't think I've seen that before in that way. And it does a jump scare without a sting. Yep. And it, and it seems ridiculous, but it's like your brain says, oh, that is what's supposed to happen next. <laughs> what do you mean? Just the back and forth. It's kind of like the, the oscillating fan <laughs> in, in paranormal activity oh. where you're, you're used to patterning something. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it's just like, you know, even if the apartment's connected that way, she comes over too fast. Yep. <laughs> at that speed for it to be natural. But she leans over the bassinet at the baby. And of course, Leah starts to cry and this wakes her mom up. But the room is completely empty, right? So the girl has vanished. Dun, dun, dun. I guess by girl, we can just say it's Annabelle Higgins, right? It's the ghost. Yeah. Well, well, is it, is it though? <laughs> Man. Looks like Annabelle Higgins. <laughs> Mia takes Leah for a walk and meets some kids that live in the apartment complex on the stairwell and they're drawing with some crayons. And as she steps out, she sees a bookstore that's like under the apartments or next door to the apartments. And she sees a book called The Devil's Welcome that catches her eye. And she finds out that her neighbor, Evelyn, owns the bookstore and she gives a book to Leah and says that it was her daughter's favorite children's book, right? On the way back to the apartment, Mia finds a crayon drawing on the stairs of her with the stroller. And if you pay attention, there's a truck in the distance. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> she thinks that the kids left it for her and Leah. And she continues up the stairs as she keeps finding more and more of the pictures. And she thinks they're copies. And what she doesn't realize is the truck's getting closer and closer and closer until splat the baby's dead. Right. In the drawing. Yep. She shows John the drawings when he gets home from work, and she says that she wants to talk to the parents because they would want to know if Leah did something like this. And John does not think she would do anything like that and critiques the art. This isn't even good. I mean, look at the proportion. Oh, what a dick. <laughs> but we can hear them argue about it as the doll spies on him from the other room. And you can just see the heads kind of turn that way and the camera zooms in like it's listening, right? Yeah. And she lets him know that she's lonely and does not have any adults to talk to. And he says that he has the next night off and that they should have a set down dinner with some adult conversation. Right. Yep. So we cut to the next night where we see a record playing and Mia eating alone with John's seat empty with the plate sitting there. So obviously he had to work an extra shift. She cuts off the record and goes to dump his plate and it kicks right back on and this startles her. So she goes and checks out the apartment. She goes to check out the curtain and then it jumps at her like there was somebody behind it. And this knocks her over, and then we see a creepy little girl go running by, giggling. She then hears the sewing machine and goes into the sewing room, only to find the little girl and ask who she is. But she's standing in the hall, and the girl's in the room, right? Yeah. Mia backs into the room that's like across from that room, and the child starts running at her full speed as the door is slowly closing. And as soon as the door is about to close shut, it pops open, and we see full-grown Annabelle Higgins running at her, and then she just vanishes. Once again, awesome fucking shot and creepy as hell. Yeah, that makes me jump every time, even when I know it's coming. I feel like it was in the trailer and it still gets you. <laughs> but we cut to her telling John about what happened and he thinks that she's suffering from postpartum depression and needs some help and he takes her to the priest, right? Father Perez lets them know that they have experienced a terrible life event and then a great life event and a pendulum swing like that can take its toll on you. And he lets them know that you don't come back from something like this weaker. You always come out stronger and they feel better about it and head out. 
they bump into Evelyn outside, and we hear that John has been working a lot. Duh. And Evelyn says that they can call any time, and she'll give a tour of the neighborhood, right? Yeah. We see Mia sewing until she hears a door creak, and then we see her write it off and then go to put Leah to bed in the open nursery. She wasn't thinking about the door, I guess. The doll's on the shelf with her head turned, and as Mia leaves the room, the door closes and makes the same creaking sound, confirming it's the same door, right? Yep. And it was just slow enough that I guess she didn't notice it. We can see that there's now a thunderstorm going on, and Mia's taking some stuff down to the basement where they have storage areas for the tenants, right? It's just like little... uh chain link fenced areas that you can lock and you can store shit in yes and in sweden they would apparently call this an attic but we'll get to that later (laughs) okay (laughs) but uh mia put some i guess they're empty cardboard boxes folded up that's what she takes down there but she starts digging for something in her unit and she hears a baby cry and then she hears a creaking noise or a squeaking noise would be better representation in this case in the background we can see a stroller roll out I think it's her stroller, but it's definitely the Rosemary's baby stroller. Yes. And we see it in the background and we hear the baby screaming again. And Mia goes to investigate with her trusty flashlight and sees a bloody cloth kicking in the stroller. And as she approaches the stroller, it stops kicking and she reaches for the cloth only to have her arm grabbed by a long black demon hand. And she looks up and sees this tall black demon that's creepy as fuck. And she runs for the elevator. She pushes the button to go up and notices that she now has a wound on her arm that looks just like the symbol Annabelle had painted in the house with her own blood. Oh, shit. Yeah. The elevator door opens after seemingly going up a few floors, and she's still in the basement. So she hits the button again, and it goes back to the basement. She tries a third time, and all of the lights go out. And this time she notices that there's an exit sign in the back of the basement where the demon was. So she books it for it, hits the stairs, and runs up trying to get to her daughter, Leah. And as she looks down the stairs, you can see the demon's hand on the rails as it's walking up the stairs behind her, right? Yeah. When she finally makes it to her floor, she can see the demon is crouched on the base of the stairs, growling at her. And then we get a lightning strike, and the demon is now on the ceiling right in her face. And she manages to get into the apartment safely. And while Mia was safe, my pants were not at this moment. (laughs) Oh, that's a good scene, man. Do you know why it's a good scene? Because James Wan directed that part. Really? The elevator segment in the basement and stuff is James Wan. That seems kind of obvious now. <laughs> Honestly, I was going to save this for the end, but I'll, I'll briefly mention it here. You can tell that when James Wan produces a movie, he's actually on set every day and producing it because they feel like Conjuring movies. Yeah. I mean, some of these are director's first films. True. You know what I mean? And And they're done well. But the next day, we see Mia check her arm, and she notices that the wound is gone. And she then invites the detective over to ask more about the case. She starts looking at pictures of Annabelle and notices that the young photo of Annabelle looks like the young girl that was in her apartment, right? Yep. She's starting to put two and two together here. The detective says that he found out that the ritual they were performing was not devotional, as he once thought. Because that's what he said earlier. He said he they thought it was a de- devotional ritual, right? Like praising something. Yeah. But he found out that it was a conjuring ritual, and they were conjuring something. Mia realizes the symbol on the wall matched her arm and discovers that the cult was called the Disciples of the Ram. And if you think about what the demon looked like, we're going to call him the Ram henceforth. Yeah, yeah. He's got ram horns. Mia then heads to Evelyn's bookstore to get some occult books, and Evelyn walks up to help her, and Mia spills the beans on everything. And you would think the neighbor would think she's crazy, but instead, Evelyn takes her to a better occult section to get even better books and lets her know that she has an open mind about shit. They head up to her, I guess it's her office, and she lets Mia know that she does not think that she's experiencing a ghost because ghosts haunt places. 
and this followed them, right? Yep. And she says that the cult was trying to summon a demon, and the demon would want a soul if it was here, right? Mia notices the scars on Evelyn's wrist where she apparently had attempted suicide, and we find out that Evelyn lost her daughter, Ruby, and she could not live without her and tried to take her own life. And at the end, she heard her daughter saying that it was not her time to pass, and she pushed on, right? And then, and I guess, stopped the bleeding, called the ambulance, whatever, and saved her own life. We see Mia in front of the apartment's lobby entrance door with the stroller, right? And she drops her keys and she bends over to pick up the keys. And in the glass, she can see a reflection of grown Annabelle Higgins behind her holding the doll. And the stroller starts to roll down and bounce off the curb into the street. And it goes in front of a truck and gets smashed. And you're like, oh shit, the baby fucking died. And then you can see that Mia was holding the baby the whole time. Yep. Had the books in the carriage. Yeah. If you pay attention to the scene, though, it doesn't look like, like, they, I don't like bait and switches. Like, she was not holding the fucking baby when she walked up and dropped the keys. No. I mean, maybe it was the camera angle. I'd have to watch it again, but I, I did watch it. Like, I rewound it when I was watching it the other night, and I was like, it just doesn't look like a baby, man. <laughs> but we cut to the apartment, and we can see Mia doing research in the Devil's Welcome book about specifically the cult of the Ram and demons, and knows that they need to spill the blood of an innocent, so she immediately thinks Aaliyah. She checks on Leah because of reading this. Who wouldn't go fucking check on their kid, right? And she finds her <laughs> playing on the floor and hears the rocking chair. And then the mobile kicks on, right? And it plays the same song. I don't think I said this earlier from the music box from The Conjuring. Oh, yeah. I don't know if it does the same song here, but it definitely did it when it cut on at the beginning of the movie the first time. Yeah. But she heads to the nursery and the room is empty and the chair stops rocking. She then hears banging on the upstairs floor again and the doors shut and lock around her because apparently every room in every house they have has two ways into them. Because <laughs> that's all the guy got behind her if you think about it in yep. the uh, other house. But you can see something moving under the door like a shadow, like somebody's walking by. And Mia hears a banging sound. So she lays down to look and she sees books flying off the shelf at Leah and missing her. And then Annabelle drops down in front of her, which freaks her the fuck out, right? <laughs> I mean, your first mistake here, who would leave a small baby like that in front of two bookshelves? Those things could have been made by Ikea, right? <laughs> so she immediately grabs the rocking chair and knocks the fucking doorknob off so she can get out of the room and goes out and grabs Leah. And we can now see the Annabelle doll sitting on the floor behind her in the living room by the window, right? It starts to stand up and then it starts to levitate into the air and she starts to stare it down as the camera zooms in and we can see the demon holding the doll and it's creepy as fuck. <laughs> and we cut to John in the hallway as we hear Mia screaming and we hear furniture banging and he bursts in and he finds her and Lee are okay, but there's furniture strewn about everywhere. And she tells him that they need help, right? Father Perez shows up and asks to see the doll. And then they let him know about the demon and what they've learned and how they tried to get rid of the doll and it came back. And he explains that the demon wants a soul. He says that the soul has to be offered to the demon and he can't just take Leah's soul, right? Because that's their concern is he's trying to, is that the demon's trying to take the baby's soul and Father Perez is like, no, you have to offer it up to the demon, right? And exactly. The baby can't do that. Father Perez says he does not know how to get rid of the demon, but he knows a couple out east that works with the church and they could help. Hmm, I wonder who that could be. <laughs> But Father Perez offers to take the doll back to the church to keep them safe and heads on his way. On his drive, the radio starts to mess up and he knows something's up. And the doll is also really coked out at this point because its <laughs> eyes are like red and you can see veins everywhere. And he makes it to the church and he takes the doll up the steps to the doorway. And we can see that Annabelle Higgins hitched a ride. 
And Father Press sees her and he tries to run into the church for safety and he's yanked back by an invisible force, slamming him on the sidewalk and cracking his skull, right? Yep. So the demon managed to grab him before he got into the church because I'm assuming he would have been safe at that point. Yeah. He would have been safe if he put the doll in the trunk. I know. It it always comes down to putting it in the trunk, right? It's (laughs) going to come up later too. (laughs) But we see Annabelle Higgins grab the doll and walk off. Back at the hospital, we can see John making his rounds, and he sees a bunch of nuns, and he realizes the priest is there, and he starts to care for him. And at this point, I'm going to go ahead and call the third act, right? Yeah. We see Evelyn come over to hang out with Mia, and she brings a bunch of clothes and toys over for Leah. She wanted the spoiler. And we can see that Leah likes Evelyn a lot, and they all spend the day together, right? And we find out that Ruby died in a car accident where Evelyn was driving, and she got into a wreck while looking at her daughter. And she made it, but Ruby didn't. And she never got to say goodbye to Ruby, and she never got to beg to God to take her instead because she was in a coma for three weeks, right? Back at the hospital, Father Perez wakes up and freaks out and asks John where the doll is. And he lets John know how evil the presence is and how bad it wants Mia's soul, right? Specifically Mia's. And back at the apartment, we can see John call, but Mia can't hear anything except for static on the phone. And she doesn't even know Father Perez got hurt or is in the hospital. And John hangs up the phone to head home, right? Yep. Mia starts hearing a banging on the door and she looks up the peephole and she sees Father Perez, but it's his back towards her, right? We know it's not Father Perez. She doesn't. Exactly. She opens the door and he's not responding to her and won't turn around. So she starts to to reach for his shoulder and we see like a demonic face on him and he starts screaming shit in a demon voice and she slams the door, right? And then the record kicks on again that was playing earlier. But it sounds like a ritual or it's being played backwards. I can't really tell, but it's like a weird, like demonic record sound, right? Yeah. And they start to hear the banging on the ceiling again. And they think it's the neighbors, but in fact, it's the fucking demon banging on the ceiling. And it dives onto Evelyn, knocking her over and sliding into the hallway. So I guess they left the door open with the priest out there. And at this point, I had to get up and go change my pants again. (laughs) Because that demon popping up on the ceiling jumping scared the shit out of me the first time I saw this. Because if I didn't say it earlier, I had never watched any of these movies until we were prepping for this episode. Oh, wow. Yeah, I just put them off because I was like, eh, I'm not really a sequel guy. And it's not even just a sequel to spin off. (laughs) (laughs) A lot better than I thought they were. But Mia runs to the apartment looking for Leah. She hears her crying and she only finds the doll. And then we see a crayon roll out of Leah's room and Mia heads in. And there are markings all over the ceiling of the symbol, which is the symbol of the ram we know now. And the words, her soul, over and over again. Mia sees the doll in the crib and picks it up, smashing it over and over again into the crib and then chunks it down the room, right? And she then sees Leah on the ground and hears her moaning and just stop moving. And I almost had to turn the movie off at this point because I thought she just killed the baby. Yeah, that shit is fucking brutal. And yeah, I had forgotten about that part of the movie on rewatch it for the episode. I'm like, oh, fuck, I forgot the demon fucked with her that bad. <laughs> I know, I know. Because we see Mia grab the lifeless body, rocking back and forth, crying and begging for God until she hears a doll mocking her. And she looks down and realizes she's holding a doll and not Leah. It wasn't even the Annabelle doll. It was a different doll. Put me down. You're hurting me. Right, right, right. Heavy illusions here that we're seeing from the statement. Yep. And Father Perez did earlier say that the devil was father of lies and wouldn't do anything to trick you, right? Exactly. 
She asks what she needs to do to get her baby back. And then she notices the window says your soul on it and it opens up and it's not really a balcony. It's like a full size window you could walk out of. It's a fucking terrible idea, especially in a nursery. I know. (laughs) But as it opens up, she can hear chanting of your soul repeated over and over again. Right. She slowly walks towards the window, realizing that she must sacrifice herself to get her daughter back. Right as Evelyn and John are trying to get into the apartment, right? Yep. And we see Mia grab the doll and say, Mommy's coming as she steps up into the window. And then John and Evelyn burst into the room and grab her before she jumps, right? And she still thinks that the demon wants Leah's soul. She hasn't figured out yet that it's trying to get her. And John is talking to her and says that he and Leah both need her, right? And Evelyn tells her to calm down and that a daughter needs her mother. And John says that there has to be another way. And then we can hear Evelyn say that there is. And we see her in the window holding the doll. And she says this way she can make it right. And she knows what Ruby meant by by her not being ready to pass yet. And she jumps, falling to her death. We can then hear Leah cooing from her crib. And she's fine. The demon got its soul. It gave the baby back. It, It honored the deal, right? Or I guess it was just not present anymore for the illusion of the baby not being there. Yeah. We cut to six months later, and we can see that Father Perez is okay and that there's no sign of the doll. And the priest says that the evil is constant and can never be destroyed, and he hopes whoever finds the doll next gets the help that they need. And he then gives the photo of me and Lee he took earlier to them, and he thanks them, and they head on their way. We cut to a woman in a thrift shop trying to buy something for her daughter, who is a nurse and she sees this really rare doll on the shelf and she wants it. And it's setting her across from a raggedy and doll There's a nice little throwback yep. there. And she says, she's got to have it fade to black. And we see text on the screen that says Annabelle now sits in a glass case inside the artifact room of Ed and Lorraine Warren. It is blessed by a priest twice a month. We then cut to the artifact room because the movie has more endings than a Lord of the Rings flick. And we can see Annabelle in the case and the text pops up that says, The threat of evil is ever-present. We can contain it as long as we stay vigilant, but it can never truly be destroyed. Lorraine Warren. Credits. I was so pleasantly surprised going into this movie (laughs) because it was really well made. I enjoyed it. It scared me multiple times. And this was a night where my son had decided to go sleep in my bed with my wife. And... My daughter was upstairs in her room, and my wife has a weird thing about her sleeping up here by herself, right? She's like, what if there's a fire? I don't know what my seven-year-old's supposed to do if there's a fire, but (laughs) either way, usually in that scenario, I'll come sleep in my son's bed. Okay. And I was freaked the fuck out, so I went and grabbed my six-year-old daughter out of her bed and carried her into the other room to sleep in the bed with me, because I didn't (laughs) want to sleep by myself that night. So it did something to me, so it must be a pretty good movie, but uh, for what they had to go on and then just come up with the story... I was really impressed. Yeah. Yeah. It's got depth to it. I remember because when I first saw it, like all I took away from it was like, eh, not bad for a spinoff. And then going back and rewatch it for the podcast. I'm like, this is actually a good standalone movie. Like there's stuff in here that I didn't remember and it works. The only thing that's weak sauce to me is Evelyn saying, fuck it. And jumping out the window like that. That was a little, little weak sauce, but what else were they supposed to do? I really liked that part. I, I thought that was very fitting of what we had seen for a character so far. And I thought it was like a really heroic thing to do. And I don't know. It just didn't seem out of place to me that she would do that. Like she was still on this earth for a reason. And she said earlier that a baby needs its mother. Like she was really like stern on that point and brought it up right there at the last minute. So I just feel like she was trying to to do that. What they didn't hit on was Mia saying that if you have to choose between Lee and me, 
you let me die. Right. And I guess the situation was presented, but like John didn't actually have to make that decision. Yeah. It was like made for him. But that's because Evelyn knew his ass couldn't make the decision <laughs> she did for him. Well, see, I, I get that with Evelyn. My, my thing is, of course, I'm cynical, is she jumps to her death and the demon's like, ha, and then turns back to the family like, I still want your soul. Like, who's to say that that was uh, the, the the offering that the demon wanted? Or is that part of the deal? If you truly offer up your soul and sacrifice, the, the, de- the demon has no choice but to take the deal. I don't know. I think he just wanted a soul and he got it. Done. Souls are tasty. <laughs> Ask Shang Tsung. <laughs> Jesus. But this leads us to our next film, which is a prequel of a prequel now. <laughs> and I'm, of course, talking about 2017's Annabelle Creation. Take it away, Josh. So this one was directed by David F. Sandberg. And I'll get into how he got into it here in a minute. But he did Lights Out, which is based off of his short Lights Out, mm-hmm. Shazam. Oh, that's my tie-on right there. I couldn't figure it out. Okay, there we go. <laughs> and about 20-something shorts. And uh, he's a Swedish filmmaker. Okay. This one was written by Gary Doberman, of course. This cast. So we've got Anthony LaPaglia as Samuel Mullins, who I'll be calling Mr. Mullins. Instantly, <laughs> Empire Records, followed by Empire Records. <laughs> Empire Records. <laughs> but uh, he was also in So I Married an Axe Murderer and a crap ton of TV. And I always think of him from the uh, vampire movie, Innocent Blood, where he's the uh, cop. And the vampire chick's killing all the mobsters, all the Italian mobsters. I haven't seen this. Oh, I hadn't seen it since the 90s, but I have good memories of it. So. <laughs> nice. We've got Miranda Otto as Mrs. Mullins or Esther Mullins, Lord of the Rings. More recently, fucking the chilling adventures of Sabrina. Auntie Zelda. Yeah. And once again, a lot of TV. We've got Lulu Wilson as Linda. Ouija, Origin of Evil. She was fucking awesome in that, and she's even better in this. Oh. And uh, she was in The Haunting of Hill House. Of course, we've talked about her and those before because of Ouija 2, The Origin of Evil. I recognized her from Haunting a Hill House, and I didn't realize she was the Ouija chick. That makes more sense to me why she looked so familiar. <laughs> We've got Talitha Bateman as Janice, who hasn't really done much. She's been in a few bad movies and some TV. Does she remind you of Newt from Aliens? When she's bad at the Towards end. Towards the end, yeah, a little bit. I could see that. We've got uh, Stephanie Sigmund as uh, Sister Charlotte, and she's done pretty much just TV. And okay. to me watching this, she's, she's, and I don't mean this in a mean way. Uh, she's like the, the Kmart Rosario Dawson. <laughs> I can't help it. Jesus. I want her to be Rosario Dawson so bad for some reason. To me, she looks like Eva Mendez is a nun, to be honest. Oh, okay. That's, I don't know who that is, face. <laughs> We've got Grace Fulton as Carol. She was also in Shazam. Okay. Philippa Colthard as Nancy, who I've only seen, who's done some TV. And the last person I'm going to bring up is Samara Lee as B, because we're going to call her B, not Annabelle, because that's going to be confusing. (laughs) And uh, the only thing of note in the effects department as far as makeup effects goes is Amalgamated Dynamics, Inc. And just a few things that stuck out to me, a lot of sci-fi, but Tremors, Starship Troopers, Odd Thomas, more recently, It 1 and 2. They've done a lot of stuff. 
Uh, so back to Sandberg, I call him the Ikea director. And if you watch his shorts, <laughs> you'll see why he is pony smasher on YouTube. If you want to see his stuff, okay. he does all kinds of shit and is big, big, big into doing behind the scenes shit too. And he did this one video. I know this isn't a director's episode, so I'm only going to tell one story, how to build a cheap ass dolly for your camera. And he's like, you take an Ikea shelf. And you buy, and this is all quick cut, like produced while he's doing this. Um, he's like, and you buy these corner brackets and you buy this many skateboard wheels. You mount the wheels to the brackets and then you take the brackets and realize you can't mount them to the board with the wheels on them. So you take the wheels back off. You then realize <laughs> that four times eight is not six. And he holds up a bag of screws that says quantity six. You then rummage around your closet until you find screws. The whole thing goes this way until he builds his dolly and track system. <laughs> So just check out his shit online, Pony Smasher. He even asked Warner Brothers after making this movie, he's like, can you send me all the behind the scenes footage so I can put my own behind the scenes how to be a director thing up? And they did. And he's like super into that shit. Watching the behind the scenes, he's smart enough to another director to take direction from his cast. How do you feel about the character? How does your character, how do you think your character feels right now? Well, I think this, yada, yada, yada. It's really cool to see him do that. In one of the behind the scenes, he's talking about when the Ram Demon's going to show up. And he's talking to the, one of the actors and he goes, and then we turn around to this shot and bam, there's Malthus. And I'm like, what? what? <laughs> <laughs> so I Google it and Malthus is the name for a demon that's the right hand of Satan. Now, okay. the demon's never given a name, so I'm not going there with it. I really think that probably just because he's Swedish and was just thinking demon and named a demon. I don't think there's anything deeper there, but somebody correct me if I'm wrong. Cause I couldn't find anything other than the fact that he said this in the behind the scenes. He could have been doing some research on his own though. And sold that name. And maybe that is who it was supposed to be. Who fucking knows? I mean, they only call it the Ram usually, but yeah. maybe it's cause they're, uh, they don't want to fuck with shit. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so here we go. We open with Mr. Mullen's workshop and we see him putting the finishing touches on the first of a limited series of handcrafted dolls. This is number one. Handcrafted creepy ass dolls. Yeah. Which well it's not it's still creepy in this one, but at least it's it's got softer features in this one, so it's not quite as creepy as once it's weathered. And uh he puts it in a box and he hears these giggles and a note is slid under the door to his workshop and he looks at it and it says, Find me. And he heads to the house that, if you'll pay attention, is covered in cross trim work from like the top of the peak of the house to the doors and like the everything. But it's all right side up crosses and upside down crosses, almost Mm -hmm. like there's a there's a thing going on that's subconscious here. There's something else you'll see all over the house later. We'll get to that. So once inside, he finds another note and it says closer. He then spots Annabelle hiding behind a curtain and writes his own note that says found you. And she comes out. And reads it, and then daddy gives her a jump scare and starts tickling the shit out of her. Then mama shows up, starts tickling the shit out of her too. You know, like, oh, cool, we're, we're this happy, happy little family. Mom takes her to put her to bed for that night. And uh, she wants the record player on, and it's playing You Are My Sunshine. And this is the first time that Annabelle gets called B by her mom. And like I said, I'll be referring to her as B and the doll as Annabelle. Okay. So the next day after church... The fam gets a flat. Dad drops a lug nut in the road and Annabelle can't see around the truck because she's standing in front of it. Mom's watching down the road where there's another truck approaching in the distance because she even says, maybe I should flag him down. 
But when Annabelle sees the lug nut, she just does what a kid would do. I'll help. And she runs out to get it and immediately gets mowed down by the truck. And it's a quick cutaway. And then we see her doll that she was holding all busted up, fall into the ground as we hear mom just wailing in pain in in the distance is what it sounds like. And uh, it kind of reminds me of that shot in uh, Hereditary. <laughs> Emotionally. <laughs> yeah, that's a rough scene, especially if you have kids. Like, it's just like, you're like, you know, oh, fuck, because it's a shocking scene. And then you just like, nobody kills a kid yeah. in a movie usually, right? And I mean, yes, we all know Gage died in Pet Cemetery, but like, that's not common to kill a kid. And I don't know, just the way it's shot and and everything and her acting screaming there. It's, it's really fucking bad. Yeah, it is rough. And it leads us to our title card where we see wood and Annabelle creation just kind of supernaturally burn into it. I was never shot for the movie. The movie was done. Sandberg loves to play with VFX. He, that's what he does. Cause he makes all these short films. He made that at home after the movie was done. He's okay. like, I can make something. And there it is. <laughs> So I don't think it says right at the beginning of the movie, but this is obviously way back when um, a, a year isn't given. Um, and I guess I should have said this earlier. The way Sandberg got approached to do this is, of course, Lights Out, which was an atomic monster film based on his short that he got to make for real, kind of like Oculus. And right. <laughs> when the first couple of rough cuts were shown to Juan, he was like, I got another movie that I want you to direct. And uh, he's like, what is it? And he's like, well, we're going to do another Annabelle movie. And he's like, sequels fucking suck. I don't want it. And, <laughs> and Juan's like, but it's a prequel. You can have some liberties. And he's like, can I have right. liberties? And he's like, yes. He's like, fuck it. Let's do it. So that's how he got involved in this. Anyways, we get 12 years later on the screen and we're in the same spot where where B got killed and we see a cross now marking the side of the road and this mm -hmm. bus full of young orphan girls and one nun passes by you saying 12 years later made me think of this. This is actually 12 years before the uh, first Annabelle movie. I don't know what it is with 12 years in this movie. Maybe it's like Pennywise. I don't know. That's <laughs> a reoccurring theme. That is correct. So on the bus, we really only focus on Linda and Janice. Um, but Father Bus Driver does mention that Mrs. Mullins was in an accident several years ago. <laughs> and I don't remember his name. What, what's this priest's nationality with that kind of last name? I know, right? And so we've established that they're going to the Mullins' home and that uh, Mrs. Mullins was in an accident and they may need to help take care of her. So as the girls get out, we see that Janice has polio. And Mr. Mullins takes all the girls in for the grand tour. And this is when we get the James Wan tracking shot from outside all the way in. And like they're going room to room <laughs> as he's like, this is our room. You don't come in here. Yada, yada, yada. Like all these things until they end up at the bottom of the staircase. So they're at the bottom of the stairs. Mr. Mullins says, well, girls, your rooms will be upstairs, which sucks for Janice. But it's cool because he has a Mrs. Yep. Deagle chair and he shows her how to use it. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much that's all i can think of is gremlins <laughs> and uh he's like this is the switch up down pretty simple but he, she has to have the seatbelt latched in for it to close a circuit presumably for it to have power to go up and down so she goes up to, to the top of the stairs in the little chair and everybody's cheering her on and uh you know how i'm gonna stop here for a second <laughs> to, quote, <laughs> to quote you I think we need to adjust the gamma on your TV. I made it a point <laughs> when I rewatched this for my notes in my studio to crank the fucking brightness up everywhere I could. Yeah. And uh, it let me catch things I hadn't seen before. Like right here, when she gets to the top of the stairs, you can see B in the darkness behind her. And she just slowly walks away further into the darkness. 
But Janice does hear footsteps. She hears B's footsteps and just kind of, you know, looks down the hall, but shakes it off. So now that she's upstairs, Janice goes straight to a locked door. Mr. Mullins pops up to tell her that it's locked and it stays that way. It's B's room, obviously. I mean, come on. Yeah. Put two and two together, everybody. But then Linda pops up from behind her and goes, hey, come over here. I got a room with bunk beds. Then we cut over to Sister Charlotte in her room, and she notices that her Bible pages are turning on their own on her bed. Like, holy shit, shit's happening fast in this movie. And then she realizes it's just (laughs) a draft from the dumbwaiter. The dumbwaiter wasn't in the script. Okay. When they were setting up the sets, the uh, production designer just said, this house should have a dumbwaiter. It's period accurate and put one in there. And immediately Sandberg goes to Doberman and he's like, I got a whole idea for two different things we need to do with this dumbwaiter. (laughs) Rewriting some shit. And he's like, cool, I'll go for it. And that's how we ended up getting everything we get with the dumbwaiter. Okay. So the girls go off to explore the rest of the property, leaving Janice behind, obviously. And she watches from the window. Once again, if you look behind her, you'll see B creep out from behind the bedroom door. And Janice doesn't turn around in time to see her, but she does see the door move a little bit and that her cane is now laying in the floor and not propped up in the chair she had it in. So B is really, really interested in Janice right out the gate. So that night, the group gathers for dinner. Everybody except for Mrs. Mullins, because Mrs. Mullins stays in her room. She Whatever's wrong with her, she's not coming out of there. We already know this very quickly. She actually interrupts Mr. Mullins saying grace with her servant bell. And he goes to check on her, and this gives Carol enough of a quick peek to see that Mrs. Mullins is masked and in a shrouded bed. And yeah. uh, I think Charlotte tells her to sit back down, and then all the lights start to flicker a little bit. But nobody says anything about it, and the girls carry on for dinner and then head to bed. So the first night, they're in bed, and Janice sees a note slide in from under the door. And she looks at it, and it says, find me. And she goes outside, and then she sees another note slide out from the locked room. And she opens it up, and it says, in here. And the door unlocks itself. <laughs> you, don't, you don't fuck with this shit, man. That's when you turn around and go, you go find the nun. The good nun, <laughs> not the valic nun. And uh, Janice puts her hand on the handle and says my favorite written line of dialogue in the movie. Forgive me, Father, for I'm about to sin. I don't believe that's how confession works. I haven't tried that yet, but. (laughs) I know, right? So once in, the first thing she zeroes in on, she has to actually uncover it from a sheet, but there's a dollhouse and it's like the typical old school thing. Dad is a woodworker and he built a dollhouse that's a complete copy of the real house. Yeah. And she looks in the dollhouse and zeroes in on a room that's B's room, which is the same room she's standing in. And there's actually mm-hmm. a little doll for B in there. And this like hidden closet opens up and a key falls out and Janice grabs it. And since she knows the layout, she looks over and goes, huh? There is a closet door (laughs) hidden over there. (laughs) And she goes over and the key works. I've heard and read so many people say that this setup's bad. Like, it's just like Resident Evil. (laughs) The game. (laughs) It kind of is like a Resident Evil puzzle, isn't it? It is. And once she gets the closet open, you can quickly see that the closet is just wallpapered in Bible pages. And Annabelle the doll is sitting in a chair in the corner. Janice is like, fuck this, and closes the door. But the door keeps opening up. It doesn't matter if she closes it, locks it. No matter what, this door is opening. Yep. You just don't fuck with a room lined with Bible pages because it's lined that way for a reason. Yes. So she takes the sheet that had been on the dollhouse and takes it into the closet and at least covers up Annabelle because she's going to keep snooping. And once she goes to the other side of the room, she gets spotted through the window from Mr. Mullins, who's walking back from his wood shop. So now it's like, oh, shit, I better get out of here. 
But what we've been seeing while all this is going on is the sheet-covered Annabelle has floated up into the air and started walking out of the closet and around the foot of the bed. <laughs> and it makes it around the foot of the bed as Janice turns around and the feet are stepping on the sheet, pulling it more and more towards the front of whatever about to pull it off as it gets right in front of Janice. And the sheet falls to reveal nothing. <laughs> <laughs> I do want to say that when it rises up, the sheet is much larger than the Annabelle doll. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, I think it's because it's supposed to be the ram, right? Exactly. Like manipulating the doll. Yeah. So this was pulled directly from Sandberg short Attic Panic. Okay. Which brings me back to my joke from earlier, because in that short, which his wife is in all the shorts and she's in this, and I think she may be in Lights Out proper. I'd have to look. In that story, she's going to put something in a storage cage that looks just like the first Annabelle. Okay. And something covered in a sheet shows up and she pulls it off and there's nothing there, yada, yada, yada. So obviously a little freaked out, Janice hobbles her way back into her room without being spotted and actually gets in bed just in time for Mr. Mullins to not see her. So she's laying there in bed huffing like, okay, I got away with it. But we see a cut back to the closet and Annabelle's not in the chair anymore. And the camera then moves across the wall and the shot turns upside down while it's looking at a cross on the wall and dives down. And then all of a sudden we're in the bottom of a well. This is another shot. That was done completely at home by Sandberg after the movie. Okay. He's like, oh, I can CGI this shit. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we're looking up in the well and we see Carol and Nancy and the two other girls, which we'll get to them later. They're not a big part in the movie. They're like, this must be the well that he keeps Mrs. Mullins in. Like they're already starting like the, like what kids right. do. They're telling these, they're, they're starting to build ghost stories about the, the scary Mrs. Mullins. And she says that, you know, she didn't even have a real face. It was like a porcelain doll's face. And, Linda kind of gets run off by Carol because she's like, you know, are you, do you want to talk about boys? And she's like, ew. And then she's like, yeah, then you, you can't talk with us. You know, how about we play hide and seek? And she's like, okay, great. I'll go hide. Like poor little girl being pushed out from the group. Yeah. And it's obvious because she's the one that just wants to be friends with the cripple as far as how the older girls see it there, you know, that, and that's, that's how kids are. So Linda goes running off to the house. And as she runs in the, uh, the entryway, she sees these like vents going into the main staircase and like, oh crap, I get, bet I can get in there. And she goes under the stairs. Meanwhile, we get a quick thing of Janice confessing her sins to Charlotte and sister Charlotte's like, okay, say one Hail Mary and unpack three boxes. <laughs> She's using that girl for slave labor, man. No, it's her penance, man. Uh, convenient. <laughs> hmm. The other girls that stayed outside, they end up going to explore the barn. And they spot the scarecrow and it's kind of creepy and it's just there for foreshadowing. <laughs> and uh, Nancy is the only one that really gives it a look like I don't like this thing. But it's another scene to set up going from the well scene to hear that Carol is the alpha. She appears to be the oldest of the orphan girls and Nancy's kind of tight with her. The other two girls are a little bit older and seem to follow them around as they're told. And once again, Linda and Janice are the outcast. Yeah. So back to Linda under the stairs. She's looking at the little slat at the front door, just waiting. And she hears a noise behind her. And she looks behind her and she's, she's under the stairs, but there's a little door like that type thing where like in other movies, you'd open the little door under the stairs and go down basement stairs. This is just like a little crawl space. And there's Annabelle off in the darkness. And then we mm -hmm. see the demon kind of come out of the darkness above Annabelle. And you can just barely see it. Yeah. You can see the eyes, but you can just barely see the demon. And it yanks Annabelle back into the darkness. Linda shrieks and falls right out through the door from under the stairs, right in front of the bitchy girls. Oh, found you. You're not very good at hiding. So shit's already going down, but it's just the two outcast girls that have been seeing it. So meanwhile, Mr. Mullins fixes up the drafty dumbwaiter for Sister Charlotte. 
and uh, he asks her about a picture of hers. And she explains that it's her and the nuns from her stay in Romania. And she names mm-hmm. off all the nuns. And then he's like, what about this one back here? She's like, oh, I, I don't know her. I don't remember her. <laughs> it's, it's bad dialogue. <laughs> but of course, it's the nun from the nun. <laughs> right. And what's really interesting about it is it's it's like one of those like hologram pictures. When he turns the photo certain directions, you can't see her. Yeah. Did you catch that? Yeah, yeah, he's like shifting it and it moves in and out of the shadows. Totally. And I don't think Sister Charlotte ever noticed her in the picture until he pointed it out. She's going to pop up a couple more times in this movie. Yep. So that night, Carol and Nancy stay up late under a bed sheet with a flashlight, making up more ghost stories about Mrs. Mullins until they hear the bell. (laughs) And at first they're like, it's time for her feeding. But then the bell starts getting (laughs) fucking closer (laughs) and they're starting to freak out. And then all of a sudden we get a doll face demon kind of pop up from under the sheet just to give him a quick scare. Cause I went back and fucking paused it. It's like a full porcelain face, but we know it's the fucking demon. Well, first you see her on the other side of the sheet, right? Like they see her in the room in front of the window with the bell. Yeah. Nancy is absolutely terrified, but Carol is already wanting to write this shit off because she's smart enough to know something's fucked up and she doesn't want to be a part of it anymore, (laughs) but she's too cool to just say that. (laughs) So we go on to the next day. And Mr. Mullins has to head to town, leaving all the girls behind. So Sister Charlotte is helping out Mrs. Mullins in his absence. So while they're talking, we see that Janice is actually peeping in on him through the door. And she hears the story about their daughter and what happened to her and that she was taken at a very young age. At the same time, she notices this picture on the wall of a little girl sitting on a couch with Annabelle, the doll. Mm -hmm. And she takes the picture. It's like, huh, I wonder if this is what I've been seeing. And she takes it into her room. And she's sitting there staring at it, sitting in her bed. She's like, okay, enough of that. And she goes to put it under the blanket. But whenever it's in shadow, B's eyes light up. She does this a couple of times. Yeah. She's like, that's really fucked up. And then just shoves it under the blanket anyways. She then hears the record player kick on in B's room. And she goes in and she's followed by Linda this time. And Linda's just like being a kid. She's like, do, 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 do. <laughs> and she's got this pop gun that was, that was B's. And she shoots it. And, and the ball smacks the Annabelle doll in the face. Because we now see <laughs> yeah. the doll sitting on the edge of the bed. And uh, so Janice is like, that's not good. And, and I keep wanting to say Lulu, but Linda's all like, eh, do, 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 <sighs> reeling in until she notices that now the doll's head is turned looking at her. Like, what the fuck did you just do? <laughs> yeah. So Linda takes off while Janice stays to go digging around some more. And she ends up finding and reading B's diary. And the last entry in it says, today I came home in completely different handwriting than the rest of the diary. Yeah. The door shuts and then B's little puppets in this little puppet show thing come to life. And uh, Janice is pretty cool about it. She goes over to it. And she's like, hey, who's doing that? And she grabs one of them, expecting there to be a hand in it or behind it. And there's nothing there. I expected to see a black demon hand when that happened. Yep. She then sees B over by the dollhouse who asks for help. What do you need? Your soul. And that shit is so evil dead. And Sandberg even goes on this thing about how, okay, look, it was written like this. We shot it. And when we went to do ADR, we tried everything we could to make this not sound like something from evil dead. (laughs) And we stuck with how it was originally written. And we just have to deal with it. (laughs) The thing is though, it's fitting here though. It's not like it looks like they ripped off evil dead. I mean, it's a demon that's only there to take a soul. What the fuck else is it going to say? Give me a milkshake, (laughs) right? Like that's all there is for it to do. But, I mean, everybody's always going to think, swallow us all. I'm going to swallow us all, right? Of course, this comes from a totally demoned out bee. Uh, Janice tries to make an escape downstairs. 
And she's going, she gets in the chair thing while she's being chased by the demon. She makes it about halfway down the stairs and chair stops. Chair starts going back up. <laughs> that's really, really sucks. It makes it up to the top. That's the part where I was expecting her to fly out the window like gremlins. I know, right? <laughs> and instead, she just gets sucked straight up into the darkness. And then yeah. we, we quickly cut to the, the foyer downstairs and her one fucking shoe falls. And it gets real quiet. The camera slowly starts to tighten in on it. And then her fucking body falls on it. <laughs> I yeah. I love that. I love that shot. You think it's just the shoe. She's gone now. I wonder where. Oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> I do think it was kind of like out of place that her getting sucked into the nothing. Yeah, but whatever. It's a Conjuring Universe movie. <laughs> and uh, for the rest of the movie, she will be known as Sad Wheels. What? <laughs> because she comes back from presumably the hospital. And now instead of just being in a brace and a fucking cane, she is now stuck in a wheelchair. So on Janice's first night back, she tries to warn sister Charlotte about the shit she's been seeing, but sister Charlotte isn't buying it because she already sees her as a liar. She's been fibbing since she's been there and getting into shit. She shouldn't be. Yeah. Mr. Mullins ends up going to talk to his wife and he says that he thinks Janice was attacked. And Esther, Mrs. Mullins says it's been quiet for 12 years Sometimes an accident is just an accident. Sometimes a cigar is just a cigar, right? <laughs> is the line from the first film, I think. <gasps> oh, yeah. Same writer, right? So Yeah. So Janice has been relegated to the downstairs, obviously. And uh, <laughs> she and Linda trade dolls. And in the opening scene, well, not opening opening, but when we first see them on the bus, they've got two dolls that they comment on how they look like each one of them. So it's, you know, it's cute that they have their own doppelganger dolls. <laughs> Yeah, And so in this scene, they trade the dolls so they can still kind of be with each other. You know, just a kid thing. And Linda goes to head to bed, but she's distracted by the sound of Annabelle rocking in B's room because we know Annabelle digs rocking chairs. This is where it came from. Yeah. <laughs> she runs over into her bedroom and she posts up in the doorway with her fucking pop gun. <laughs> she's shooting it off into the <laughs> darkness. Never, never. I'd sit there armed, but I would never sit it out there because a pop gun for anybody that doesn't know, it's a gun that shoots a ball that's got a string on it. So you can pull the string back in and reload the pop gun. So on like the second or third shot, something holds onto the string when she goes to reel the pop gun back in and it goes up higher and higher in the air. And (laughs) finally, the whole gun gets ripped out of her hands and we hear these charging footsteps from out of the darkness run right up to the room and it scares her back up into her top bunk. She looks over into the floor and she sees these dark footsteps that lead up to the lower bed. And then she looks and you never see this. Everybody always leans over the side of the bed. I love this. She looks at the crack in between the top bunk bed and the wall to look down below. Uh And there's fucking Annabelle like right there looking back up at her. And she's like, this is some fucked up shit. And then the demon kind of hunches over the Annabelle doll and pulls it back out to where she can't see it. She's like, that shit's even worse. (laughs) (laughs) He's a creepy looking demon, man. He is. And he's always got this look on his face like. I'm creepy. <laughs> That's like all he does. <laughs> so the next day we've got uh, Janice chilling out in the sun where uh, sister Charlotte has put her to just kind of chill out, get some vitamin D. We got a tight shot on her and all of a sudden her chair gets kicked by something out of frame. On the behind the scenes, that's literally Sandberg laying on the ground. He's like, action. And then he kicks the shit out of the back of the chair. <laughs> and then presumably Valak as the nun grabs the back of the chair and charges her ass into the barn. That's what I took it as. And I'm assuming Valak and the Ram are both working together to raise hell. Basically. Hey, that's two different forms of raise there, right? (laughs) 
<laughs> exactly. Because <laughs> we know what's about to happen with Janice, and, and Valak was helping get her into the room for it to happen, right? Yep. Shit's about to get fucking real. <laughs> because once she's in the barn, B pops up and immediately does this crawl charge right up onto her. Because when, when she gets wheeled in, she's like flung out of the chair, and the chair flies across the room into a million pieces. She's she's stuck on this dirt yeah. floor. So B charges up on her and jumps right up on her and does the the you're now possessed puke into her mouth. Which is uh, a Conjuring verse staple, right? Yep. That's what happened in the first Conjuring film. Then uh, the others find her and her chair's fine now and she's sitting in it and she's got her back to all of them. They're like, oh my God, Janice, are you okay? And she looks over her shoulder and she's like, I'm fine now. <laughs> and it's really creepy. And yeah. poor Linda is the only one they hold on Lulu Wilson's face and she's looking at her like, that's not my friend. That's so not my friend. <laughs> She's so good. I have a question for you, though. So with the rules of this universe, you have to offer up your soul. So did she just offer her soul to him to like get out of it? Or is possessing different than taking your soul? I think possessing is different than taking the soul. I think possession is just the... Uh, like he beat her till she was so weak that he could take over. And now he's using her to get exactly. a soul? Exactly. It's so? part, okay. part an extension of the trickery. It's just so confusing. I don't know. It's, it's just kind of odd because you didn't see that in like the previous film where somebody just got like insta possessed. Yeah. So Linda obviously realizes that something's fucked. She ends up telling Mr. Mullins about Janice seeing B and freeing the Annabelle doll from the closet while they're sitting on the porch and he's carving this crucifix. And he's like, the fuck she did. <laughs> <laughs> like that shit was put there for a reason. <laughs> right. So now he knows for sure shit's going down for real. It doesn't matter what Esther thinks. So shook as shit, Mr. Mullins goes inside and he finds Annabelle. And I think she's sitting at the end of the dining room table and she's got a fucking note sitting there. I really should have wrote what the note says, but oh, well, Jesus, we're trying to run a quality fucking podcast here, Josh. Yeah. yeah. You, you should hire, hire caliber talent. Uh, <laughs> Nobody else is going to work for free. <laughs> Touche. Welcome to the American dream. So Janice then comes walking in and yes, walking. That's an important thing here. <laughs> and she's totally shrouded in darkness behind her and the demon pops up behind her. Mr. Mullins still fucking death grip in this uh, crucifix. He's been working on tries to banish the demon. And it's a good shot of his hand up and like one by one, his fingers are not only pulled off of the crucifix, but broken completely backwards. And uh, yeah, he tries to hold on to it all the way down to his thumb, but it gets broken backwards too. It's so fucked up. We get a cutaway to Charlotte hearing his screams as we're also hearing him. It sounds like being broken into pieces and collapsing in the floor. And sister Charlotte runs in and finds him dead as shit. A real good shot. The eyes yeah. rolled back in the head, all contorted and shit. Later that night, Linda decides Annabelle has to go. <laughs> like, yeah, She's had enough. And she goes and grabs the doll, which is now just chilling on the couch with Janice, obviously. And she takes it out to the well. And Charlotte happens to spot her out the window and she goes to follow. But back out to uh, Linda by herself, she hears this fucking coming up on her footsteps again, like she heard in the darkness with the pop gun. And when she spins around, there's nothing there, but still a really freaky shot. Yeah, because the, the stomps are loud as shit. Yeah, they're Toby stomps. <laughs> yeah. So she makes it to the well. By then, Sister Charlotte's there and Linda's all like, it's this doll. This doll has to go. And uh, she throws it in the well. I'm like, okay, cool, whatever. And then these hands pop up and grab onto fucking Linda mm -hmm. and start pulling her ass down into the well. But Sister Charlotte manages to pull her back. 
They go back inside and boom, there's Annabelle already again, chilling in the, uh, on the couch where Janice had been sleeping. Cause one of them goes to pull back the covers to see Janice and they see Annabelle, the doll and fuck instead. Yeah. So sister Charlotte grabs the doll. Cause now she's had enough and she confronts Mrs. Mullins who freaks the fuck out and then spills the beans. And we get flashbacks of how this shit went down over Mrs. Mullins dialogue. Yeah. She says that after losing B, they prayed to anything that would let them see their daughter again. And it worked, but it quickly turned dark after they granted her permission to live in the Annabelle doll. And what's cool is in the the flashbacks when you see, uh, you see mom and she's like, Oh, I can just see, I can just see my B over there. Isn't that nice. And then turns around the other way to look at a reflection in the mirror. It's the fucking demon. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And she spins back around. She's like, what? So who knows what they prayed to, to let this happen, but whatever it is, they fucking invited it in. And the flashback leads up to Mrs. Mullins confronting the demon, you know, Bible in one hand, crucifix in the other, and it rips her fucking eyeball out. (laughs) Yes. So they have the church bless the doll. That's when they made the Bible room, locked it away. And then Janice came to stay with them and fucked it all up. Exactly. And I really think that the Ram was trying to take the mother's soul, like we saw Mia in the first movie, and it just backfired because Mr. Mullins came in and like stopped it. Yep. So now with the whole story in focus, let's head on to the third act. Okay. (laughs) So Janice immediately attacks Nancy with a knife, and Sister Charlotte tells Carol, Nancy, and Forgettable to stay together and go call for help. Because there's two other young girls that are just there. They don't have roles in the movie that do anything for the plot. They're just some of the kids from the orphanage. Yeah. So they do just that. And then they go to wait outside and they hear the bell on their way out. And they're like, holy shit. What about Mrs. Mullins? We can't just leave her in there. A girl who's crippled and in a fucking wheelchair just tried to attack us with a knife. Something is going on. And uh, they go in and once they're in a room, they don't see anything on her bed except for a bloody mask. And Nancy is kind of looking down and she sees a drop of blood hit her hand. And she looks down further, and there's a pool of blood with dripping, and then looks up, and they all see what's left of Mrs. Mullins nailed to the wall with fucking crucifixes. Yeah. It's badass. And what's even more badass is the blood dripping and the blood on the floor was never shot. They just walked into the room and saw Mrs. Mullins. And when they went into editing, they noticed the shot of Nancy looking down. They're like, this doesn't make any fucking sense. What is she looking at? And what does Sandberg do? I do CGI. I'll fix it. And he got leftover (laughs) boards from the actual set and used them to put together a little piece of floor in his apartment, put blood on it, shot that for that shot of Nancy looking down. And then CGI added the blood dripping on Nancy's hand to make the whole thing stitched together. Fucking genius. In a way, but it doesn't make any sense while there's any blood above her. I'm okay with that because I don't know where the other half of her fucking body is. <laughs> That's what I try to rationalize it with when I watched it for a second time last night. Because I agree. She's definitely not standing under her. They make it clear she's closer to the foot of the fucking bed. Meanwhile, <laughs> Janice attacks Sister Charlotte and scares off almost as forgettable, <laughs> which is the other little, little girl, as Linda gets locked in her room. Because she goes running into a room like, I'm going to hide in here and shuts the door behind her. But then the closet door shuts and locks. The window won't open. What the fuck is she going to do? She can get in the dumbwaiter. So she's not in her room. She's in Sister Charlotte's room. Anyways, (laughs) so she crawls into the dumbwaiter. Meanwhile, back to the other girls outside, 
who are trying to take the truck and get to town or at least get the fuck away and they can't get it to crank and the headlights only come on when it cranks and maybe a truck from like the fifties or whatever would be like this, but I don't care what it sets up. And Nancy is the only one in the truck that notices this. That as the lights <laughs> come on, that fucking scarecrow that was in the barn earlier is now leaned up on the on the outside wall of the barn. And that fucking scarecrow's moving <laughs> when the lights yeah. come on. Until finally it's not there at all, which is just like the shit they do in lights out. Not knowing what else to do and not being able to get the truck to stay running, they all go charging into the barn as a place to hide. But Carol's the only one who actually runs ahead of everyone else, and the others stop because they spot the fucking scarecrow now back in the barn where they had seen it before. And Carol's yeah. like, what? And the door fucking shuts and locks behind her. So we're going to stick on uh, on Carol in the barn here for a second. So the demon reveals itself through the scarecrow, like coming out where the hands would come out and shit. It's actually really cool. And all the lights in the barn start unscrewing until they fall. Carol's fucking smart. She sees a ladder. She sees the next light bulb that's being unscrewed. And she goes over there and screws the fucker back in. Eventually, the demon just says, fuck it, and reaches out and grabs the bulb and pops it. Now she's in the dark. All of this was also pulled from Sandberg's short film, Attic Pan, <laughs> with the bulbs unscrewing and then finally one being burst, which is fine. It's a fun scene. Yeah. I really like all of that scene because it's so fucking creepy. They had great use of the demon in this movie, I feel like. Oh, yeah. All of them, really. Yeah. I like how active he is in this one. Not just scaring, but like literally interacting. Well, and you see that he doesn't always like have to use the doll. Like the doll is just something he does to fuck with you, but he's like always around and able to do shit, right? Yep. So now that she's in total darkness, she scrambles towards the only light she can see and is in the workshop now where she's rescued by Forgettable. So back to Linda. Remember, we left her in the dumbwaiter and she's making her way down and she gets to her to a floor and she goes to get out and she's kind of looking around this dark room, doesn't really know what's going on. And all of a sudden, half of Mrs. Mullins comes charging across the floor. at her. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Did you read anything about Mrs. Mullins corpse or reanimated corpse is originally supposed to be a bigger part of the finale of this film and they had. They had even shot it, and then they ended up replacing a lot of it with the scarecrow scene. That sounds familiar. I remember watching a thing about deleted scenes where they said that the scarecrow took up more space at the end than originally intended. Yeah, because I think it was supposed to be Mrs. Mullins' like zombie corpse was like the main bad guy at the end. It was like a bigger part of the finale. Okay. But Lieutenant Dan, she ain't got no legs. <laughs> I don't know what she was supposed to do. Exactly. All she's going to do is, is scurry around and scream, but... She's fucking scary looking. Anyways, she hops back in the fucking dumbwaiter and starts pulling the rope to go up. But she looks down and there's Janice crawling up the, the thing like a like a wild animal. Yeah, it's creepy as fuck. Yeah. Just as Janice makes it to the bottom of the dumbwaiter, we see the ram demon's hands come up and grab the bottom of the dumbwaiter and start pulling it down. And she tries to beat the hands with the flashlight a little bit. But then she does the fucking smart thing and she grabs the counterweight rope. And as the demon's pulling the dumbwaiter down, her ass gets pulled up to the next floor. Right. Of course, she crawls out once she's up there. And I love a little note like that where it's like, instead of somebody just screaming and wailing, it's like, I'm going to fucking think in this moment. Yeah. So once Linda gets back out upstairs, she hears this noise. It's like this. She goes out and she looks over the balcony and she spots Janice down below, stabbing the shit out of her doll in the face. You know what I like most about Sweet Sue? She looks just like you. So Linda takes off and ends up hiding in B's closet. But then she realizes that Annabelle's in there too, back at her fucking chair in the corner. <laughs> and she's like, uh-uh. <laughs> and just then Janice flings the door open 
and she jumps on top of Linda to fucking stab her. But then Sister Charlotte pops up, and she's holding Annabelle in one hand, and she's got a rosary in her other hand. <laughs> I think she even says, I'm sorry, Janice, or something like that. And Janice goes to stab her, but stabs the Annabelle doll instead. And Charlotte throws the rosary over Janice's neck and then throws her and the fucking doll into the closet and slams the door shut and locks it. She also pulls the uh, Ikea cabinet over, right? Like in front of the door. <laughs> yes. And uh, the shards of glass from said cabinet start to shake as we start to realize the entire damn house is starting to shake like the end of a Conjuring movie. <laughs> Technically, this is the end of a Conjuring movie. Exactly. And the two run out of the house, fucking poltergeist style. And they meet up with the other girls out front as we see all the lights on the property explode. We then cut to the police arriving. And when they open the closet, they find Annabelle the doll and a Janice-sized hole in the back wall. <laughs> Father bus driver pops up and blesses the house and explains that the doll was just a conduit. And now it's just a doll. So, which one of you gets this? Man, fuck no. Just all kinds of no. Now, I do want to point out that we cut immediately to all the girls closing the trunk of the fucking squad car with the Annabelle yeah. doll in there. Thank you for putting it in the trunk. You're right. That is where you wanted it to go the whole time. So the group then leaves on the bus and they go right back past the cross from where B died at the opening of the movie. And we fade to an orphanage where Sandberg's wife greets a couple right there down at the gate. Uh-huh. And as they go inside, if you know the movies, holy shit, it's the Higgins. And they're there yep. to adopt a girl who turns around and calls herself Annabelle. But it's Janice. Yep. They give her a Raggedy Ann doll as a present. And we cut to these family photos that show Janice aging through the years until we hold on the last one. And it says 12 years later, we then see the Higgins murder play out, but this time from inside the bedroom. Yes. Such an awesome touch to, <laughs> to redo this scene from another perspective. I love it when films do that as like the backstory or something or the flashback and, and you get to see what happened from the other perspective. It's just awesome. Yeah. It, it's so great. And we end up cutting to a wide shot of the two houses and John walking from one to the other as we hear you are my sunshine fucking playing. Yeah. And then we hit credits, but they're credits over a crawling shot kind of moving through B's closet with all the Bible wallpaper and it lands on the Annabelle doll sitting there. And at the very last frame, you can just barely see the Annabelle doll twitch just a little bit. And we go to our proper closing credits. Now, before we get to the post credits, (laughs) this was another shot that was done after the fact that Sandberg, he did the pictures all in, in the computer when it's panning across the mantle. And he did the entire shot of the camera going over the Bible pages and landing on Annabelle and Annabelle turning is not CGI. He actually just took two different shots from two different angles and did a morph. Cause he's like, okay. gonna, I want a little twitch at the end. But after the credits proper, we see this door open and words appear on the screen that say Abbey of St. Carta, Romania, 1952, where the nun slowly starts to head towards the camera as the candles go out on either side of her until she gets right up to you. And then it's the end. And that's it. And for a prequel, it's fucking great. Yeah. I love how this movie is shot. Lulu Wilson and the girl that plays Janice are fucking awesome. Yeah. They carry the movie. They have to. And nobody in the movie's bad. And it's a good origin story without it being too dumb. Like, you know, oh, we sacrificed one child at the river and it caused ball. You know what I mean? Like where they go really, really wild with it. it. It still feels grounded for as much as a demon coming to swallow someone's soul movie can be. So we're to assume that the Ram has possessed 
Janice's body, who is now going by the name of Annabelle. Yes. And she randomly went to go murder her parents and found the same doll again as she was dying and re, I guess we can't say possessed it because they say you don't possess a doll, but like re-haunted the doll to get a new soul. Is that your understanding? Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. Are we assuming that like the doll wanted a younger body like she'd grown up? That's what I don't understand. I think it goes off into a wormhole with that. Right. I think it's just like child's play that it, it just needs to exist in something because if the if the if the tie to the mortal world gets severed, it's going to be even harder to get back. That's what I presume. I'm not saying so much that supposedly Annabelle and the guy were doing a ritual to summon the demon, yeah. right? But the demon was actually living in Annabelle's body. So what was actually happening there? Was it summoning another demon into the earthly realm? Maybe. See, that's what I don't understand. I don't know if. The, it's one of those weird post-traumatic stress disorder things, and we're supposed to believe that young Janice Annabelle doesn't remember anything, and this is like buried in her subconscious, and that's how she seeks out the cult to try to bring this thing back. Maybe. It's a good thought. It's totally open-ended because you're right. If she's still possessed right now, now we're supposed to believe it takes 12 years for something fucked up to happen. And on top of it, she's spending her adult time to try to summon the same demon she's possessed by. That's just dumb. <laughs> that is interesting though you brought up the 12 year thing because 12 years had already happened while it was dormant before yep. so that could be a thing maybe it was a ritual to make the ram actually be able to be physically there fully and not need a vessel like actually summon it like toby at the end of the paranormal activity series right yeah and now that i'm thinking about it the the demon even though i said it interacts more in this one if you think about it it almost seems to a certain degree, as far as real world stuff happening, a bit weaker because of how much it uses Janice. Yeah. So maybe that is part of it. And it's it's just not all the way there yet. Like it, it still needs a host. And maybe the ritual was to not need a host anymore and actually be a, a fucking demon unleashed on the earth. And then, you know, shit went awry and she had to kill herself. Check this out. So the blessing of the doll and the Bible room is what put it to bed for 12 years to begin with. What if when sister Charlotte locked both of them in there, the reason there's a hole torn through the wall was not the demon escaping, but literally Janice becoming Janice again, stuck in there with the demon and she escaped. And now the demon is simply stuck with the doll again. And by pure happenstance, subconsciously, she, she ends up seeking out the same demon in a cult later in life, blah, 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 yada, yada, yada paths cross once more. So, uh, I mean, it's a little open-ended, but I think through all that, we came up with some um, possible head cannon to make it all make sense. Because honestly, they did a good job of the prequel. Sometimes prequels fuck up things and you have to retcon them. And that's the only hole I could really think of is why did Annabelle go and, and, and kill her parents and try to do a ritual to summon the demon. And honestly, my theory on, on trying to like not need a host probably makes the most sense to me. But I kind of <laughs> wish they would have flesh that out somewhere because once again this head cannon i'm making shit up <laughs> well and once again we had a conjuring movie that had a massive return on investment once again yeah so when that happens you got to have another movie this time in the form of 2019's annabelle comes home this film is directed and written by gary doberman so that's part of why this trilogy is so good we've had the same screenplay writer for three films in a row and he's now directing the third film, and this is his first director credit, right? So I'm not going to go over screenplays again because we've we've already done that. Been there. 
As far as our cast goes, I'm glad to get to say these two again. We got Vera Farmiga as Lorraine Warren. Of course, she's famous for the Conjuring verse, Bates Motel, Orphan, The Departed, Up in the Air, Godzilla, King of the Monsters, etc. And then we got Patrick Wilson as Ed Warren, Conjuring verse, Insidious franchise, The Watchmen, Aquaman, Fargo, the series recently. And uh, glad to have them in here because with this being a Conjuring verse spinoff trilogy, it's nice to really rein them in on one for. A good part of the movie. They're yeah. not the main cast of this movie, but they're in here for a good part of it. And I'm always glad to see them in these roles. We have McKenna Grace as Judy Warren. And I want to point out that she's not related to Kiernan Shipka from The Chilling Adventures of Sabrina. Because my wife and I saw her on a show recently and we're like, that's either the same girl or they're fucking related. Because we're watching <laughs> an old show on Netflix. No relation. Um, she is going to be in Malignant. So that's two people from some of these movies that we've covered today that are going to be in James Wan's next film. I guess she's really liked him. <laughs> she's also going to be in Ghostbusters Afterlife when it comes out. She was in Designated Survivor. And she was in Haunting a Hill House as young Theo. And then she was in Amityville Awakening. And she's also young Captain Marvel in the Captain Marvel movie. Oh, damn. And huge horror fan. And watch it. I, I know I'm saying that about like a 10 year old, but like she's a huge horror fan and watches horror films with her father on the regular. Nice. Which I think is fucking awesome. Hell but yeah. She's new in the role of Judy. We had the same girl play Judy in the first two films. And by the time they made it to this movie and needed her as a main character, the original actress had outgrown the role, which is a problem that you have with child actors, right? Yeah, but she's awesome. So who cares? <laughs> I know I made a joke about her being 10 and. That was closer to her age when they made this movie, but she's currently 14 and has 58 credits already. Damn. Yeah. So pretty good. I like her in this movie a lot. We have Madison Eisman as Mary Ellen, and she's famous for the two new Jumanji movies most recently, and she's going to be on the I Know What You Did last summer TV show. I don't know if she's a main character, but I'm assuming she is. Okay. And she also was in Goosebumps 2, and apparently... She's famous for a TV show called Still the King, which I've never heard of or seen, but that was one of her prominent roles. <laughs> okay. And the only other person I'm going to say as a main character is Katie Seraf, who plays Daniela Rios in this movie. And I only saw that she was in a lot of TV and not anything that really jumped out to me, but I think she's fucking great in this movie. Yeah. And I didn't see anything crazy for special effects. And once again, produced by James Wan. <laughs> Hopefully I wasn't too absent during Josh's film at the end there because I realized I didn't have any backstory notes on this movie and I felt like I fucked up. So I was doing a little bit of research and apparently while I was writing my shit for this episode over two weeks, I really couldn't find anything. I don't, other than supposedly the set was haunted as shit and a lot of scary stuff happened, especially with the girl playing Judy, like. At one point in time, something weird happened and they were, they were trying to like talk to see if there's a spirit there and her nose started bleeding, for example. Oh, wow. And they had set pieces move supposedly randomly, but they were also making a creepy horror movie. So who knows who was fucking with them during that point in time. But I don't know if there was anything crazy to make this movie other than the first two did really well. Let's go ahead and round the trilogy out and bring Annabelle to the Warrens and bring the Warrens in. So we can have a Conjuring verse movie that is not the Conjuring and have the Warrens in it. I think it was a great idea. Yes. So I guess I'm just going to dive into the movie, okay? Let's go. So we once again open up with the scene from the Conjuring and the original Annabelle where the Warrens are getting the doll 
from the nurses, and we hear Lorraine say that demons do not possess things, they possess people, and that this doll is a conduit, right? Yep. They explain that they cannot destroy the doll because it'll just make things worse, but they're going to have to contain it. Because one of the nurses are like, let's just fucking burn the thing, right? (laughs) (laughs) And I guess that just frees it even more, like it doesn't have its anchor, I guess. We then see the Warrens driving home with their new child. I'm sorry. Creepy ass murdering doll in the backseat of their car. There you go. And (laughs) we find out that Ed is terrible with directions and Lorraine has to keep him on track at all times. (laughs) They come up to a wreck and the wreck's in a tunnel that they're trying to drive through, right? And their way is blocked. And when the police officer comes to the car, Ed offers his help. And the police officer wants to know if he's a doctor or something. Or something. The cop passes on the help from the creepy ass doll man and gives them directions for a detour. And while this is going on, Lorraine can see the ghost of the dead girl from the car accident standing outside of the tunnel, right? Because she's a psychic. And from what I saw from the Conjuring 3 trailer, she's going to have a much larger role with her psychic powers for that movie. Yeah. Because I don't think there's as much to go on for that movie as the other (laughs) team. But they head on their way for the detour, and of course, Ed gets them lost. As Lorraine picks on him for this, the car dies right in front of a graveyard. And Lorraine is trying to figure out where they are on the map while Ed works on the car. She has the map blocking like the uh, passenger window the whole time, so you can't see out of it, right? Yeah. And you just think there's going to be something there. And when she finally puts the map down, there's nothing there except for the sign for, for a cemetery, right? Like, that's how she knows they're at a cemetery. And... It really builds tension, and you're really waiting on something to happen. And I know I said this happened in the first movie, and on one of the recent Creep Show episodes, I'll just call it the Vampire episode. You probably know what I'm talking about. The the girls doing something with the refrigerator, and it's kind of similar. And I think this is a more recent trope, and I think I love it. Oh yeah, when done right, absolutely. Because it just builds tension and tension and tension, and then there's nothing there, and I'm okay with that. And then you eventually make something there one of the times, right? Like it, it's just awesome because it is a good way to put you on the edge of your seat and bite your nails, and then you just get lulled into a false sense of security, right? From to get you later, and it, I think it's really cool, and I've seen it more and more in, in recent films. So yeah. Anyways, like I said, there wasn't anything there, and. I guess by anything, I mean there wasn't a jump scare. But Lorraine does notice they're at a cemetery because she can see the gates. And then we can then see the girl from the accident sitting in the backseat of the car. And she delivers the ever-popular, I like your dolls, line, right? Like, we get a, a revisit of that in this movie. Lorraine checks the back seat, and then she hears the girl once again. I feel cold. Honey, that's because you're dead. <laughs> Exactly. (laughs) Lorraine lets the girl know that she was in an accident because she was not aware. And then we are jump scared by Ed bumping the horn under the hood of the car where he's working on it. Right. And Lorraine noticed that there's a lot of ghosts gathering around the gates of the cemetery. We then hear Ed say that he thinks he fixed the car and he slams the hood and we can see the ghost surrounding Ed now instead of being at the cemetery gate until one of them grabs him and chunks him in front of a moving 18-wheeler where he nearly dodges it and he's okay and the, the truck driver gets out and he's like freaking out and he's saying he's sorry and he doesn't understand what happened. It's like something took over his truck, right? Yeah. Lorraine informs Ed that this is the dolls doing and that it's a beacon for spirits and really it makes me think of Insidious at this point. With Josh and Dalton, right? Yeah. Like how they're vessels because they can um, 
go into the astral plane. And when their bodies are vacant, ghosts and demons just start surrounding them. Like the ghosts want the body, but the demons come in and say, fuck you and kick their way through. And that's what's happening with the doll because of the events that happened with, I guess, the blood from the demon slash Annabelle seeping into the doll. It's now this super totem or conduit and all the ghosts are like, I want to fucking possess that thing. Right. But <laughs> we know there's a demon coming in and he's going to win. Right. But I don't know. I think it's a nice parallel. We cut to the Warren residence where we can see Judy wake up in a room excited that her parents are home. And we can also see that the Warrens already have a priest waiting for him. Right. The Warrens and the priest head into what I think is the early stages of the uh, cult museum. Cause there's not as much shit in there yet. And they try to cleanse the doll. We can see the priest attempt to cleanse the doll with prayer and holy water. And we can see some of the other artifacts in the room cowering when the prayers happen, right? Like the symbol monkeys freaking out and stuff like that. Yeah. We have a couple of fucky things happen in the room. And then they realize that they're going to need another barrier of protection on top of the blessing, a full holding one. And the priest agrees that a blessing will only do so much. And while I didn't cover Steve Coulter as Father Gordon in this film, I do want to point out he is the priest in like all of the Conjuring movies and most of the Conjuring verse movies. Oh, okay, okay. Like any of them that's not a flashback, he's the priest usually. I did not catch that. But anyways, Ed comes up with the idea to use some church glass that they had gathered from Trinity Church. And I guess Ed uses his uber handyman skills to slap together a lockable cabinet out of these glass panes. And they secure Annabelle inside on a chair. They then ask Lorraine if it worked since she is psychic and she would know. The evil is contained. This house is clear. (laughs) I really do think of her from Poltergeist when she says that, but it is its own thing at the same time. But it's great. How much they they fit together. Yeah. The fact that they quickly went from, I think we have some panes of glass from that church to having a fully built cabinet would bother me, I think, in most movies. If we wouldn't have seen Ed in every other movie, be able to fix shit like it's nobody's business. Oh, yeah, this is fine. He's He, he goes in the backyard and builds this shit while singing Elvis songs. We totally know he can do this. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> like, honestly, though, that would bother me in most movies. And this one, I just pass it off. I'm like, eh, Ed built it, right? <laughs> <laughs> At least the, the movie version of Ed, he can fix it. I mean, he fixed the fucking car from demonic possession in the middle of the road. Right? <laughs> Bringing us back to Poltergeist. Car angry. <laughs> <laughs> There's going to be a little bit of angry car on the next episode, I think. Oh, little teaser there. <laughs> but anyways, we cut from Lorraine to the title card and it says the Warren artifact room holds the world's largest private collection of haunted and cursed objects. Due to the extreme evil contained within the Warrens have the room blessed weekly. While every object has its own unique and terrifying history, there is one artifact the Warrens deem more malevolent than any other. And then it pops up and says, Annabelle comes home. Oh, shit. We cut to 12 years later. No way. It's just one year later. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Like, wait, what? (laughs) And we can see Judy eating breakfast and being bothered by the newspaper that has an article on her parents called Heroes or Hoax. This is about a controversial exorcism, which I assume is probably the first film. Because Amityville and stuff like that, Ed never tried to perform an exorcism, but Ed had to do the exorcism in the first Conjuring movie, right? Correct. It's not referencing the the exorcism that on the projector that gets shown in The Nun, is it? It's shown in this movie too, but do you think it might be referencing it? It could be referencing that. For some reason, I was thinking that was part of the first Conjuring movie when the mom was possessed. 
I'd have to go back and watch them. But either way, like it's it's Ed did an exorcism, and that's what they're getting, you know, yeah, wrecked in the newspaper for. Yeah, and it's art imitating life, kind of like you know, are are these are these helpful helpful people or are they charlatans? Right, which you hear a lot nowadays, especially now that they're gone and not here to defend themselves, right? Yep, and that's ballsy to put that in the movie yeah. at the year that this was put in the movie. So I give a props for that. And don't forget, James Wan always had Lorraine on set when he made movies with their characters. Yes. Like he would go to the museum regularly to look at the artifacts. He'd have her on set for consulting. Hell, there's pictures of Patrick Wilson next to the actual Annabelle doll in the museum because he went to see everything before he did the movie. Yep. Right? Like everybody was all in on this. But anyways, we can see that this really bothers Judy and she runs upstairs to her room to pack her backpack for school. And she looks bothered by something and stares at the crucifix on her wall that's over her bed. And she grabs that shit and puts it in her backpack. It's coming to school with her, right? <laughs> we can see that the Warrens are going on a trip and that the babysitter, Mary Ellen, will be taking her to school that day and staying the night with her. Yep. We can see that Judy really likes the sitter, but she's bothered by something and she's bothered to be dropped off at her Catholic school that she goes to. And Mary Ellen can really tell that something's wrong, right? At recess, we can see that Judy notices a priest standing oddly in the courtyard and staring at her that no one else seems to notice. <laughs> yeah. She goes for a crucifix in her backpack for protection. And as she pulls it out, she pulls her hood up over her head. And it kind of made me think of a child hiding under the sheets from the thing in their closet. Right. Totally. And she turns to where she saw the priest last and he's not there. He's gone. We then cut to Mary Ellen as she heads to the store on her free period to get some things for the night at the Warren house. And her friend Daniela bombards her with the newspaper and questions her about the Warrens. And she's really pushy and adamant about coming over and staying at the house, even though Mary Ellen's against it. And Mary Ellen says that Daniela is a bad influence and the Warrens will know if she comes over and that someone else stayed at the house because Lorraine's a psychic and you can't really get anything past her. Exactly. And Daniela notices the cake mix and finds out that it's Judy's birthday and that Mary Ellen is making a cake for her. I do want to point out this movie either came out or was filmed during the actress playing Judy's birthday. It's kind of crazy oh really i think it was the release day yeah but daniela points out who's working the cash register and heads over to address him bob's got balls how you doing oh about the biggest pair you've ever seen <laughs> exactly <laughs> we get to see one of my least favorite horror tropes and that's of the asthmatic needing to hit their inhaler because they're now nervous and anyone who's listened to the podcast knows that i'm asthmatic and that pisses me the fuck off every time i see it in a movie because you're not gonna have an asthma attack because you're about to get flirty or something or you're nervous <laughs> when it got to that i'd forgotten about that being a part of her character when we were watching this movie and i'm like oh, jesse hasn't got to bitch about this in a while here we go <laughs> <laughs> but as we cut back to daniela she points out to bob that he lives across the street from the warrens and she wants to know if he's ever seen anything weird there and daniela basically threatens to bust out mary ellen for liking bob until she agrees to let her come over to the house. After Mary Ellen walks out, Daniela still lets Bob know that Mary Ellen likes him, right? Like, <laughs> She's trying to help some people out, man. Well, I mean, at this point in the movie, I, I don't like her character. Like, she was annoying, and I was hoping she was going to die soon. However, my opinion of her is about to change greatly in a few minutes, <laughs> because she's a really good actress. But back at the school, we can see that none of the other kids want to come to Judy's birthday party. 
or they're not even allowed to come to the party because of the article about her parents, right? And we can also see a boy named Anthony who was a bully to her, and he warns the other kids to stay away from her or they might get obsessed. It's possessed. what I said. Mary Ellen breaks it up by telling Anthony that she'll go get his sister, and he freaks the fuck out and backs away when he hears that. And I want to point out that this kid was made up, and he's supposed to be a representation of Tony Spera, Judy's future husband, and that's why his name's Anthony. And... Gary Doberman wanted to know if it was okay to add this character into the movie to plant a seed for further movies in the Conjuring verse. Oh. So even though Judy didn't actually meet Tony until they were adults, the seed is planted to to have them together earlier so they can do like a teenage movie with Judy and, and her boyfriend or something, right? So it's art imitating life again. They took a little bit of reality and added some fiction to it so they could use it for more movies and more money. Ultimately. Yeah. It'd be the sparrows, not the Warrens, but generally the same thing, right? As yep. we're about to see with her character as, as the story progresses. Oh yeah. She's got the shin in. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I also want to point out that if you look at Judy Warren's actual birth date, she would have been in her twenties at this point in time. Oh, that does not make sense. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's a fictional story about the Annabelle doll, right? Like, that's the thing. Like, most of the Conjuring stuff is supposed to be based off of a true story, but the spinoffs are complete fiction based off of the stuff from the true story, right? Or the supposed true story. But like I was saying, like, all the kids are either, I'm not coming to your party, or my parents are not letting me come to your party. And one girl at least apologizes for not being able to come. And she says that her parents said that she's not ready to process death yet. It's a birthday party. I'm sorry. Mary Ellen wants to know how long this has been going on as they walk to the car. And they pass a bust of a priest who passed away recently. And it's the one that Judy has been seeing, right? And she can see the priest actually standing down a hallway staring at her. If you haven't figured it out at this point, she's psychic just like her mother. <laughs> I didn't pick up on the bust being him until my second watch. Oh, really? Yep. Well, we cut to the Warren residence and we can see Mary Ellen and Judy making the birthday cake and they're rocking out some tunes as someone starts to beat on the door and they continue to beat on the door and they finally go to answer the door, but no one's there. And then they're startled by a bell and it's Daniela ringing one of Lorraine's bells. And Daniela wants to know if it's a spirit bell and Mary Ellen clearly shows she has no clue what that is. And then Judy just chimes in and explains it, right? Like, oh, I know this shit. Yep. And we know that this little girl has learned a lot from her parents at this point and knows more stuff than she should for her age. It's a lot of weight to carry around. Exactly. We find out that Daniela came in through the unlocked sliding back door, right? And that's going to be important later. At this point, Mary Ellen introduces the two of them because Judy's like, who the hell is this? <laughs> basically... And Daniela gets super nosy about the house and Judy's parents. And she then gives Judy a birthday present, which is a pair of roller skates that used to belong to Daniela until she broke her arm. But luckily, she thinks Judy looks way more coordinated than her, right? <laughs> I love that deductive reasoning. <laughs> I know, I know. Clearly, Daniela brought this to soften the blow if Judy was really like, why are you here? Which she was, and it worked because she is a child, psychic or not. Yep. Judy wants to go skate around the block, and Daniela says she'll watch the cake while Mary Ellen takes her. 
and she promises that she's not going to snoop or anything like that, right? As soon as they leave, she's alone in the house and starts to snoop, and she finds the locked door to the artifact room with all of its warnings posted on it, right? She then calls out some spirits on the other side to unlock the door, and they do manage to unlock the door handle for her that was unlocked earlier. Unfortunately, the other 97 locks on the door are still locked, right? Yeah, I got a beef with these 90, some of these 97 locks that we'll get to once she has the keys. <laughs> she then goes into Ed's study and starts digging through things, including files and all sorts of shit. And she's about to give up on finding the keys as she sits down at the uh, chair of the desk because she's gone through all those drawers at this point. Yep. And Ed, of course, has a picture of Jesus Christ on his desk. And she's looking at the picture. And you got to remember, all these kids go to Catholic school, right? Like we saw that earlier. And she's like, please don't judge me. And she lays the picture down and Ed hides his keys behind his picture of Jesus Christ. Okay. Yep. I guess if you're trying to stop demons from getting into your demon artifact room, that's a good spot. Yes. But I'm once again, going to go with a smart ass demon. Like I did at the end of the first movie and be like, I'm going to get the keys from behind the picture. I don't have to see Jesus. <laughs> we got a real Scooby-Doo moment here. <laughs> <laughs> Not the last one. <laughs> but Daniela uses the keys and she makes it into the artifact room. And we can see there's a lot of shit in here. There's a samurai set, an old TV, a music box, which you should recognize from The Conjuring. Yep. The symbol monkey we saw earlier. The Black Shook, which is a book about a werewolf. A Milton Bradley board game called Feely Mealy. And of course, the Annabelle doll. There's a lot of other things in the room, but those are the prominent ones that point out right there. Yeah. Interestingly enough, I did some research on the artifacts that could be found in the real Warren house. Okay. And I was able to find where Tony Sparrow had talked about the artifact room in the movie versus the real one. Okay. They don't have a samurai set in there. They don't have a feely mealy board game. He's assuming that was like based off the Ouija board they have in there. I couldn't find much about the black shuck. They do have a wedding dress in their artifact room, but the wedding dress story we're going to hear in a little bit in this movie is completely made up for the movie. Okay. The white dress they have in their actual artifact room is supposed to be the lady in white of Connecticut's dress. Oh, okay. Like the Where lady they stop in the, the white. lady in white. Yeah. So kind of interesting. Like obviously the creators of these films had seen the Warren room and they used some of the artifacts and added to it. But I just thought it was worth pointing out. Okay. But of course, Daniela notices the Annabelle doll case and she heads over to it and inspects it. And then she walks towards the TV that's in the middle of the room. And behind it, you can see the wedding dress I was talking about. And there's an old typewriter beside it. And then she also manages to find a bag of coins on a shelf. And the first time I saw this movie, I assumed it was Judas's 30 pieces of silver. <laughs> that's a good guess, but... It's later answered, right? Like you find out what it is later. Yeah. And I do want to point out, cause it's going to come up later. She is touching all of this stuff as she goes around and discovers it. Yes. That's a good line later. She then heads to the piano that's in the room, which according to Tony Spare, there actually was a, a piano in the room that was Ed's piano, but I feel like it came from a place haunted. I think the haunting of Connecticut house, it was the piano from that house. Oh, okay. Cause that's not a conjuring verse movie, but that's a, it's based off a case. The Warrens had something to do with. Oh, no so shit. So I think it was that haunting that the piano came from, and Ed kept it and, of course, played it, because I'm assuming he could actually play and sing in real life, or they just had Patrick Wilson do it, because he could, but <laughs> that was Ed's piano in the room. The piano was actually there. I just don't know the backstory of it. But after she gets to the piano, she plays the first few notes of Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star, and then places a picture that she had in her pocket on the piano. 
She then asks for a sign that there's a presence in the room with her and then cries out for her dad. Right as she gives up and tries to leave the room, she hears a thud. And we can see that Annabelle is slumped over in her box and her forehead's up against the glass now, right? Yep. Danielle approaches the box and goes to the keys on the ring until she's able to find the one for that lock and unlocks it. She tries to stand the doll up and put it back in the chair, and she's obviously creeped out by it and doesn't want to touch it, but she also doesn't want anybody to know she was in the room. (laughs) She then hears the smoke alarm go off, and it's like, oh, fuck the cake, and closes the box, but doesn't actually lock it back. Yep. As she runs off into the, the house proper to go to the kitchen, we can see that Annabelle falls over on the door again, and this time the momentum is enough to push the door open, and the Annabelle doll falls out. It's no longer blocked by the barrier of protection from the holy glass, right? It's kind of like opening the closet door of the closet lined in Bible pages, right? Yes, exactly. We see Mary Ellen come in, and she gets on to Daniela for burning the cake, and lets Daniela know that Judy's out back feeding the chickens. So Daniela heads out there to go hang out with Judy and Judy expresses how she hates Anthony Rios who bullies her all the time. And Danielle lets her know that this is her little brother and he annoys her too. She then gives a juicy little tidbit about her brother to Judy to embarrass him at school and lets her know that he's a bedwetter still, right? Yep. She then asks Judy to take it easy on him because he's had a rough time recently. So we know there's something going on there, right? Inside, we see Mary Ellen ordering a pizza as someone's ringing the doorbell. The person then starts to bang on the door and this freaks her out. So she walks up to the door and asks who it is with no response and sees nothing through the peephole until she walks away and hears a little girl ask if Annabelle's there. She answers the door and sees a little girl. She tells her it is the wrong house and then the girl says that Annabelle is there and she's standing right behind her and then she giggles and runs off. And we should know this to be little Annabelle Higgins at this point, right? Yep. Or actually, it was B. I think it was the actress that played B, right? You know what? Now that I'm thinking about it, it is B. Mary Ellen goes out back to check on the other girls and hears Danielle explaining why the kids are afraid of Judy. And she lets Judy know that it's because they don't understand what's going on. She says that the Warrens gave her hope that life goes on after death and that meant a lot for her. And the other kids just hadn't got that yet. And she'll meet people that, that understand that eventually, right? Yep. And she says that her darling dad is out there somewhere. And it's really amazing in how short of a time her character has grown in the movie. Like, like she's developed quite a bit from the, this is the annoying character that I hope dies soon that wants to come over to the party versus the, oh, you realize she's got some reasoning and she's actually nice to Judy, right? Yeah. And it develops further as we go. At this point, Daniela sees the ghost of her dad in the house and goes inside alone to investigate. Judy and Mary Ellen go into the house to try to find her and she's running around panicked looking for something they have no fucking clue what's going on she won't say what it was that she's looking for and what she saw judy on the other hand can sense something and she looks up the stairs and catches a glimpse of a woman in a white wedding dress walking by in one of the rooms and she goes upstairs by herself to check it out as she approaches one of the rooms she can hear a rocking chair creaking and catches the reflection of the annabelle doll in the mirror before she opens the door but as judy enters the room she sees that the doll is gone She looks under the bed and finds a note that says, miss me, and it's written in crayon, and she then hears something beating on the closet door. The crucifix in the room turns upside down and falls off the wall, and we can see the bride walking around outside of the windows, which were on the second floor. 
but yeah. she's walking by. And as she walks by, pictures are falling off the wall as she goes by them. And then she cuts the corner and there's no windows on that wall, but there's mirrors. And we can see her in the mirrors walking by. And then she cuts the other corner where the doorway would be. And you can see her in the hallway. Right. And she stops. It's a really cool, freaky fucking shot. Once again, I don't think I've seen anything like that. And I liked it a lot. Well, what I was going to ask, was this another one shot setup? Because out of all things, it gives me dead silence vibes, to be honest with you. It also makes me think about Valak walking around the room in The Conjuring 2. Yeah. Right. Like until it gets into the painting and the painting charges out. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Because at this point, the bride pulls out a knife and charges at Judy, who holds up a crucifix and screams. The other girls hear the scream and come up to investigate, and they find Judy in the corner, cowering, praying, and holds up the crucifix. Judy lets Mary Ellen know that she was scared and that she can see things like her mom can see things. And she lets her know that she sees ghosts everywhere she goes. And Mary Ellen says the ghost used to be people and not all people are bad. So maybe not all ghosts are bad either. Right. Uh, foreshadowing. <laughs> they find Daniela in the study going through files. And we see that she's looking at one of them on a serial killer named the fairy man. And one of his victims look just like Mary Ellen. She then finds the file in the black shock about the man possessed that thought he's a werewolf. And, you can tell from the things that she's saying that ever since she heard about the Warrens in the newspaper, she's done a bunch of research on them, right? Yeah. Well, Mary Ellen's looking at the ferryman file. She wants to know what the coins on the victim's eyes are for. And Judy just walks into the room and says it was to pay for the ferryman to cross over the river sticks, basically, right? And Mary Ellen's like, we should go. We should get out of this room. And Judy's like, it's okay. I like to snoop in these files too. <laughs> right? Like, so this is something Judy does regularly. So let's just hang out and do it some more. Daniela then asks about a mourner's bracelet and finds out that it's in the room as well as the wedding dress, right? Like, as they're going through the different files about different cases. Judy is really opening up to Daniela until Daniela asks about the doll. And then Judy just stops her in her tracks, right? And somewhere in here, she was like, oh, I've seen blah, blah, blah. I think it was the dress. It's in the room down the hall, blah, blah, blah. And she's yeah. like, what? And she's like, that's what you told me, right? Like, that's where all the creepy shit is. So <laughs> she almost busted herself out. Oh, she did bust herself out. <laughs> yeah. But Judy lets her know that the doll is truly evil and to leave it alone. One of them then accidentally bumps a projector and it turns on and we can see a video of Ed performing an exorcism like Josh mentioned earlier. And they stop the uh, projector from running and decide to start the slumber party, right? Yep. They decide to get the night's festivities going off with the board game. And they go through a stack in the closet until they find Feely Mealy, which I skipped this part earlier. I'm sorry. When Daniela's walking through the room, there's a shelf and she's looking at something on it. And if you look, the Feely Mealy board game is like front and center right there. Okay. So exactly. We know that came out of the artifact room at this point. I can't believe that's a real fucking game. I know, I know. Did it actually come out, though? Because I feel like all of this is the RAM doing stuff and making you think you see shit that's not there. Oh, yeah. Because if you think about it, things that you see not in the room are in the room later. True. I think it's just him manipulating things. I think he can manipulate ghosts, too. But we'll get to that later. <laughs> but they pick Feely Mealy. Judy doesn't remember ever seeing the game, let alone playing it. And to anyone that doesn't understand how the Feely Mealy game works, you pick a card from a shuffled deck. It has an item on it. The item is in a box that has a hole in it. And you blindly dig through the box until you find what you think is the proper item, right? Terrible if you have roaches or spiders. <laughs> it's just creepy altogether. Yeah. We should totally get it. I <laughs> know, right? 
During Mary Ellen's turn, someone starts ringing the doorbell and beating on the door. And she tries to ignore it because she remembers what happened earlier. And the other girls get her to go and answer it, right? Because they're like, they don't know what happened. Yeah. And there's nothing sinister here. It's just Bob's got balls and he wanted to come over and say hi to her. As he starts to talk to her, the stoner pizza guy walks up and greets Bob with the Bob's got balls greeting, right? So apparently everybody calls him this. And Mary Ellen gets the money to pay the pizza guy. And the pizza guy lets Bob know that he just has to woo her and he gives him some advice. There's only one way to woo. It's obvious. Rock and roll. Mary Ellen comes back with the money for the pizza and the pizza guy heads out and she tells Bob that she would invite him in, but the Warren said no boys. She then asks him where he got the nickname and we find out that he's the ball boy for the school sports teams, right? And that's why I say him because Bob's got all the balls. They then say their goodbyes and Bob heads out, right? We see Judy eating pizza alone and she's watching the dating game where we see a girl win a Raggedy Ann doll as a prize and then the TV cuts out, which is a nice little Easter egg there because of the actual Annabelle doll. Yep. She starts to look for the remote and she sees it under the couch. And as she lies down on the floor to reach under the couch, we get a cool upside down camera shot, which I feel like is really common in these James Wan movies, right? Like he likes to do that and I think it's disturbing as fuck. <laughs> but she grabs the remote and pulls it and what we now see is that the remote was blocking her line of sight of the Annabelle doll laying on the floor on the other side of the couch. Judy hops up on the couch and tries to look down the back of the couch right as the lights go out in the house. And she's freaking the fuck out and thinks the doll's doing something to her, right? But we then see that it's Mary Ellen and Daniela with a birthday cake. And they sing happy birthday to her. And then we cut to the girls putting Judy to bed as Daniela tucks her in and Judy gives Daniela an invitation to her birthday party. Right. She says, I don't think many people are coming, but I'd like you to come. Dude, they ate that burnt ass cake. <laughs> Only the top was burnt. Maybe they cut the top off, put some icing on it. <laughs> They're then surprised because they start to hear some music and they go to the window and they find Bob poorly playing a song on his acoustic guitar and singing. When he realizes that there are three people watching, he just dives right back into it. And uh, you can see at this point that Bob really does have balls. <laughs> like he's not holding a boom box up like Cusack. He's playing and singing and he doesn't even know the fucking chords. He's got to look at the neck and pause to change. It's great. Yeah, he's smitten. Exactly. And of course, this causes Mary Ellen to need her inhaler before she can go talk to him because she's a little fluttered. And he finishes his song and realizes that the girls are all gone from the window. And then he starts to be encircled by fog. And then a werewolf comes out and chases him around the corner to the backyard right as the girls come out with no sign of Bob, just the fog. Mary Ellen then sends Judy to bed and says goodbye to Daniela, who offers to stay the night to help Mary Ellen not be creeped out, but she actually just doesn't want to have to go home by herself. And Mary Ellen tells her she's fine and gives her a hug and, and tells her goodbye, right? Yeah. I do want to point out the werewolf was practical. They made a werewolf for this movie, even though it's covered by CGI fog the entire time. Really? It's got some touch-up work, but yeah, it's an actual werewolf of the stunt guy in the suit. I literally just typed in my after this notes, uh, werewolf CGI better than cursed. <laughs> Non-CGI, practical world. Now, I'm sure some of the running through the fog scenes were probably CGI, but like when it's on the roof of the car ripping in, that's a werewolf. It's a stunt guy in a werewolf suit. No shit. That's awesome. Yeah. As much as we say how difficult it is to make a werewolf suit and how expensive it is, they made it for that small part, which I thought was cool. That's great. But we can see that Daniela is scared to head home alone in the dark through the fog. And 
She knows she's got to do it, so she takes a couple steps, gets cold, and puts her hands in her pocket and finds that she still has Ed's keys. She knows that she's got to put them back so that she doesn't get busted and nobody gets in trouble. And she knows that she can sneak in through the back because the back door is probably still unlocked like it was earlier, right? Yep. Danielle sneaks in quite scared and quietly heads towards the study. She doesn't want the other girls to know that she took the keys or went in the room or anything, so she doesn't even want them to know she's in the house. As she walks past the artifact room, all of the locks in the door unlock and the door swings open. Upstairs, we can see that Judy is asking Mary Ellen how Daniela's dad died, and we find out that it was a car accident where Daniela was driving the car, and it wasn't her fault, but she blames herself, and only she blames herself, right? Which is interesting that the car wreck thing kind of happened twice in this trilogy. That's what I was going to bring up, because that's like the whole Evelyn thing. But in Evelyn's case, it was actually her fault because she wasn't paying attention. She was looking at her daughter sleeping, right? True. Should have put her in the trunk. <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> I'm not going that far. But I'm guessing in this case, like a drunk driver or something hit them, right? And yeah. Dad died. She didn't. But anyways, we cut to the Museum of Death, where we can see Daniela checking out the room again. And she notices that the Annabelle doll is missing from the box. And while she's checking out the case, we can see a small box on the shelf behind her slams shut and this scares the shit out of her, right? Like the sound of it does. She checks out the box and finds out that it's the morning bracelet that she was asking about earlier. And she takes the picture of her father that she put on the piano earlier and puts it inside of the locket part of the morning bracelet. And there's not a morning bracelet in their room, but they did have a necklace that was like a necklace of pearls in a little box. And supposedly that women would wear it and it would strangle them. Oh, no shit. Yeah, yeah. And it was a cursed pearl necklace, and they had that in a box on the shelf. And they're assuming when they did the tours through here before writing the movies, they saw that and decided to come up with the morning bracelet. It's a guess, but it's a solid guess. Oh, okay. But Daniela tries to contact her father again now that she has the morning bracelet, and she's interrupted by a chair rocking on its own. She goes to check out the chair, and we see a man walk behind her, and then the door slams shut and locks. She then hears the piano finishing the notes to Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star, and she calls out for her dad. She approaches the piano and plays the first few notes to the song, and then we see a ghostly hand come down and finish the song, right? Yep. She then looks up to have a sweet reunion with her darling dad, only to see a creepy zombified corpse version yelling at her for killing him, right? Like he's blaming her for killing him. That's a bit of a shock. Yeah. Outside, we can see that Bob's hiding in the chicken coop, and he can hear the werewolf walking around. One of the chickens pops the coop door open and <laughs> sneaks out in the yard. He's trying to save the chicken until he decides he can't help it any further, and he just shuts the fucking door and leaves it out there to die. And we can hear the werewolf kill the chicken, right? Back inside, Mary Ellen's cleaning up the birthday party dishes because there's, like, cake plates and stuff on an island with uh, glasses of milk because you got to have milk with your cake right of course and as she turns around to put shit in the sink we see one of the glasses slide down the island and off into the floor and break and shatter right so she goes and gets a broom and a dustpan and she tries to clean up the mess and then she hears the stereo come on and she goes to stop the record right she starts to hear a creaking sound and heads upstairs to check on judy and judy's fast asleep with the Annabelle doll in the bed next to her, and Mary Ellen thinks nothing of it and tucks both her and the doll in. As she heads down the stairs, the door slowly closes behind her, and it makes a creaking sound to let you know that's the creak you heard earlier. 
Yeah. However, she's walking past the TV, which is turned on at that point in time with a kid shutting a door slowly. So even if she heard the creak, like her, her subconscious would tell her it was on the TV. Yep. And I like how they threw that in there because most movies don't think to do that. And it was pretty <laughs> cool. Even though we can see in the conjuring verse that demons can alter spatial areas and sound like it happens a lot in the conjuring and in this trilogy, like I'm assuming that's how Janice was running down the hallway screaming before she got in the stairs and nobody came out to check on her. Yeah. It's probably because they couldn't hear the scream outside of the hallway, right? Like that happens a lot in this franchise. Well, that's because they're in the further. <laughs> <laughs> now we're bringing insidious on board. <laughs> Back in the museum, Danielle is trying to find a way out, and we can see that there's a huge layer of fog outside the little window, right? I don't know. It almost looks like a basement. Now that I think about it, there's like a little window slit up high, right? Yeah, yeah. It's basement-y. I should have said it earlier, but when Mary Ellen was cleaning up the glass, we saw fog surround the um, sliding glass door. So the house is completely covered in fog, we know now. Yeah. We can see what's referred to as the future TV. And I'm not sure if this one was actually in their museum or not, but the future TV cuts on and Daniela can see herself in the TV. So she approaches it and basically the TV shows you what's going to happen in the next 30 seconds. You can't really tell it here, but later there's an important part and you can tell it's like a 30 second delay. Yeah. But she watches a series of events unfold and she's very much freaked out by it. Like I would be. We then cut to Mary Ellen doing homework in the living room, and it really makes me think of Lori hanging out in the uh, living room on the couch at the end of Halloween. Yeah. Before she realizes Mikey came in, she stabs on the needle, the camera angle, the furniture, everything. But that's probably just because I'm a Halloween nerd. But anyways, <laughs> she starts to hear people talking somewhere. So she turns off the TV because she realized it wasn't what the TV was displaying. And she heads towards the sounds to investigate it. And she finds out that the sound is coming from the study. And it's a recording on a tape recorder of a survivor of the ferryman. And it keeps rewinding and playing the same line over and over again. If you don't pay his toll, he will take your soul, is what it says. Nice. But the lights go out in the study and she grabs a flashlight and looks at the ferryman file. And she then hears the sound of coins dropping and goes to investigate. We can see a man behind her with coins over his eyes, but she doesn't notice it's there. As she walks through the house, she keeps hearing more change hit the ground and she picks up a coin that rolls towards her. We can see more people throughout the house with coins over their eyes as she's walking around, but she never notices any of them, right? Or they're out of her uh, peripheral. Yeah. She can only hear and see the coins. So she follows the trail of coins to a dark hallway and she can see the silhouette of a man with two coins over his eyes. So she shines the light up only to see the coins floating in the air, which drop, right? That's such a creepy shot. Yeah, exactly. The flashlight dies as she picks up the last coin off the ground, and the ferryman's ghoulish face pops up and slams its eye socket towards where she's holding the coin up in the air. Really creepy, and I like how they did it. Because if you're paying attention, it's like he popped up and slammed the coin back into his head. Yeah. And, of course, she makes a run for it and is knocked over and yanked back by the unseen force that we've seen happen, which we know is the ram, but, like, they don't know what the fuck's going on. Yeah. The flashlight comes back on as she grabs it, and she points it towards the direction that she's being dragged, and there's nothing there that makes her free. She's able to escape now. We cut to Judy's room where she's sleeping until she's startled awake as something's trying to yank her off the bed paranormal activity style <laughs> the blanket then starts to stand up and she looks under the blanket only to see the annabelle doll then out of nowhere little annabelle higgins comes running up under the covers at her right like it's fucking creepy as hell it goes from the doll to the girl 
Judy falls onto the floor and stares at the light from the color wheel lamp that she has. And and they've showed it a few times. She has a lamp and there's like a windmill kind of thing that's blowing with different colors, right? So it changes the light in the room. Kind of makes it feel like the creep show, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> there's a lot of green and red. Yeah. But as the light's spinning around, we can see that the Annabelle doll's now laying on the floor in front of the lamp. And as the colors spin by, the shadow changes. We go from the doll laying to the doll sitting, to the doll standing, to little Annabelle Higgins, to full-grown Annabelle Higgins standing there with the knife, and then finally it turns into the ram, right? Then the ram pops out of the darkness from behind Judy, scaring the shit out of both her and me. (laughs) (laughs) And Judy makes it out of the room, and her and Mary Ellen try to make a run for it. But the doors in the house slam shut, and they realize they're trapped. They call Lorraine on the phone and everything seems fine until Lorraine asks to speak to Annabelle. And then she says he really just needs a soul, which is just fucking creepy to hear Vera Farmiga say it. Yeah. Then all the bells in the house begin to ring and there are a shit ton of them. Because earlier when Daniela asked if it was a morning bell, Judy said, no, it's just one of my mom's bells. She likes to collect them. So there's bells all over the fucking house. Back in the artifact room, we can see Daniela on the TV, and in the TV, we can see she's hiding behind a shelf and then crawls out to answer a phone. And then we see her screaming and covered in blood. The camera pans from the TV to the actual Daniela, who is hiding behind a shelf, and she hears the phone ring, and she crawls out and reaches to answer the phone and is stopped by Judy as her and Mary Ellen rush into the room. So I'm assuming you die if you answer the fucking phone (laughs) and they stopped her from answering it. Maybe all the artifacts in the room start to activate and the typewriter starts typing miss me over and over again. And Judy says that the doll is doing all of this and it wants a soul. Daniela starts crying, saying that she wanted to tell her dad that she was sorry. And they ask her what she did. And she says that she let the doll out. Right. And then they ask, what else did you touch? Everything. She really did touch everything. (laughs) Yeah. At this point, everything in the room goes crazy and they make her run for it. As they run off, Mary Ellen drops from an asthma attack, and Daniela says that her inhaler is in her car, and Judy runs to go get it. Daniela tries to stop her and is scared by the bride who runs into the room and tackles her and then pukes into her mouth, which we know in the Conjuring verse means you're now possessed, right? It's entered your body. Yep. Outside, we can see Judy makes it to the car, which is covered by fog, and she gets inside to look for the inhaler. And the door slams. We can then see glimpses of the werewolf running around the car and she can hear it. And then it jumps on the roof of the car and slashes through it because it's like a soft top convertible, right? Yep. And the werewolf starts to reach for her, but she dives out and books it to the house. The party's bard then appears out of nowhere and saves the day by smashing the werewolf in the face with a guitar. (laughs) Bob runs off, broken guitar in hand, and Judy makes it inside to give Mary Ellen her inhaler. The girls then hear Danielle crying for help in the house and Mary Ellen wants to go save her and Judy stops her from going and says, that's not Daniela, that's something else and it has a hold on her and she can feel it. She says they need to find Annabelle, lock her in the case and it'll free Daniela. And that's her psychic powers kicking back in. And at this point, we're diving into what I call the third act. Mary Ellen asks Judy if she knows where the doll is and Judy says she doesn't. And then she senses something and sees the ghost of the priest from earlier at the bottom of the stairs, and he walks off. 
She looks to Mary Ellen and says that not all ghosts are bad, right? And she decides to follow the priest. And that lets you know that the priest's ghost was there to help her the whole time. Yes. The duo walks through the foggy house and they spot the Oni samurai suit and they can hear the sounds of people being violently murdered as they walk past it. They make it into the study and they see that Annabelle's sitting in the closet and then the closet door slams shut and locks. Judy says she doesn't know where the key is because she didn't even know you could lock that closet. And then they find a feely mealy card on the floor that has a picture of a key on it. And goddamn, this is fucking genius here. <laughs> they then see the feely mealy box in the middle of the room and realize they have to reach in and feel for the key. And Mary Ellen's freaked the fuck out and slowly starts trying to get her hand towards the hole. And then Judy just quickly slams her hand in there, grabs the key and yanks it out. She's psychic. She can find it easier, right? Question, why, why didn't either one of them just pick up the box and turn it sideways and shake? <laughs> they would have shook a giant fucking demon out. You know it. <laughs> I think they were better with the uh, with Mary Ellen tricking the demons into thinking that they could rip her hand off in a second, and then Judy just like psychic sneaks through another hole and grabs it. I think that worked better. Yeah. But once they unlock the closet door, it's no longer a closet, but it's a long tunnel lined with all of the victims from the ferryman with the coins on their eyes. Like they're in coffins like old wild west photos with coins of their eyes and there's a lantern hanging so mary ellen grabs it and heads down the tunnel while judy stays in the study to pray and i think the door yeah the door shuts at this point i guess judy's just trying to bless mary ellen as she walks through the tunnel yeah as mary ellen walks past these bodies you keep waiting for one of them to jump out and grab her and they don't but you do hear coins dropping behind her as she walks by and as she makes it down the tunnel, she eventually sees the victim that looked just like her, but with coins over their eyes, dead in the coffin, and it's clutching the Annabelle doll. The lantern, of course, goes out at this point, and she reaches for the doll, but the corpse has a um, death grip, I guess you would say. <laughs> and Mary Ellen keeps yanking on the doll until the corpse jumps at her and screams at her. And we cut back to the study where Judy's praying, and the closet door slowly creaks open, and the doll is flung towards her on the floor. So you don't know what's going on at this point. And then you hear Mary Ellen yell to go. And Judy grabs the doll and runs off. So Mary Ellen sprinted down the hall and chucked the doll, I'm guessing. Yeah. Judy runs into Daniela, who's wearing the wedding dress that makes you go crazy and murder people if you wear it, which is what we heard from the file earlier. And she has a knife in her hand. She also looks possessed as fuck. Yeah. Mary Ellen tries to fight her off and loses and possessed Danielle starts to drag Mary Ellen off somewhere and backs up to the wall where the projector was pointed earlier. Judy hits the button and turns the projector on and it projects Ed performing an exorcism, holding up the crucifix and it works and exercises Daniela. I thought this was fucking awesome how they did it yeah. because the demons in the body there's a crucifix being pointed at it there's a demonologist yelling a prayer at him and it worked i thought it was a really cool use of old footage to do that yeah hadn't seen that done before totally by it but judy runs off and she's running past the feely mealy box and what we've been waiting to happen the whole fucking time hands come <laughs> out of the holes and grab her and trip her but she is able to get away and she runs into the artifact room as they open the cabinet, we can see the black demon hand of the ram slam the door shut, right? Like he's stopping her from opening it. So from a different perspective, you might have just saw an unseen force closing the door. But now we know that anytime you see shit like that, it's the ram. Yeah. He starts to growl and he knocks Mary Ellen back to grab Judy. 
And the way he's moving is creepy as fuck because he's missing several frames as he's moving and everything else is moving normal around. Yeah, it's dope. Yeah, I liked it a lot. He pins Judy up against the wall and he starts to suck her soul out of the body. And I'm not really sure how this works because I never saw Judy offer her soul to the Ram at any point in time. Ah. So I feel like it breaks the lore of the franchise a little bit because he's eating her soul. Or maybe he's just tricking him and making him think she's eating her soul. Who the fuck knows? But anyways, Judy resists him and grabs a crucifix that's on a shelf and she puts it on his head and it burns him and it sends him running away. Just like Nightmare on Elm Street. (laughs) A little bit. The girls start getting surrounded by the artifacts that can move and Judy starts to say a prayer. They throw the Annabelle doll into the cabinet and try to close it, but are just barely not strong enough to get the door shut all the way. And then out of nowhere, Daniela jumps out in her normal clothes and grabs the door and helps them slam it shut. It took the power three, apparently, to get this (laughs) demon conquered. And everything seems to go back to normal. Daniela asks if it's over, and Judy lets her know that it is. The evil has been contained. So she says the same thing her mom did at the beginning, which I thought was kind of cool, actually. Yeah. The calm is broken as the doors bust open and Bob's got balls comes charging in with his broke ass guitar to save everyone, but he's a little too late. Mary Ellen finds out from conversation here that he actually saved Judy from a werewolf and she's impressed by this. She likes that about him. They head back into the house and we can see the reflection of the doll in the mirror from the music box from the original Conjuring film, which was a nice little Easter egg to have there. And it's neat because the first spinoff of the Conjuring series is ending with an Easter egg to the franchise that started it. So it's like we ended where we began. In a yeah. way. We then can see the girls sleeping on the couch as Bob stands guard with his guitar neck and strings. And <laughs> they're awakened by the sounds of the warden's breaks. And this wakes Judy up. She knows it's her parents. And Bob's like, oh, shit, boys aren't allowed here. I got to sneak out before the warden's get in. And he scores a homecoming date on the way out. Good for him. (laughs) And Daniela, Judy, and Mary Ellen agreed that they have to tell the Warrens everything, which is probably a smart move since Lorraine's psychic in these movies. True. We then cut to Judy's birthday party where only the Warrens are present. And Lorraine explains that eventually she'll find people that understand are not afraid of her. And Ed threatens to beat up young Anthony. Right. And that's, that's something Daniela said to her. So if you think about her mom's given her the same advice Daniela gave her, right? Yeah. Like the, eventually she'll find people that are, are okay with it. And at this point, the doorbell rings and Judy goes to answer it. And that's Mary Ellen and Daniela who are apparently still allowed in the house for some reason. <laughs> and Mary Ellen even brought her new boyfriend, which Ed is apparently happy that she's dating and refers to him as Bob's got balls. So even Ed Warren calls him Bob's got balls. Everyone knows his nickname. It's like they say this shit on the PA at the school fucking football games or something. (laughs) Exactly. But Danielle lets Judy know that she had a talk with her brother, and then all of the other kids from school start to show up, including Anthony, who comes in last and apologizes to Judy for everything that he did to her to ruin her party, right? And Lorraine tells Daniela that she wants to show her something and takes her into the artifact room, which I'm surprised Danielle's willing to go into the fucking artifact room. But I guess she had Lorraine Warren with her. So she was okay. That and the sun being up. Yeah. But Lorraine tells her that all of the evil in this room reminds her of all the good outside of the room. And she hands Danielle the picture that she had left in the morning bracelet and calls her darling Daniela. And she wants to know if Mary Ellen told her that. And Lorraine says, no, your father told me that was your nickname. And Lorraine lets her know that her dad 
loves her and misses her and that he wants her to know the accident was not her fault. And they embrace and head upstairs. And we see Ed break out his guitar to start singing a song for the party because that's what he does in these movies. The end. <laughs> that's the end of the movie. There's no mid-credit scene. There's no post-credit scene. We do get really cool like images of the Annabelle doll that it fades through for the first half of the credits that are kind of neat to watch. But that's it. Yeah. And that's the end of the trilogy. I don't think that they're going to make a fourth movie. I mean, I wouldn't put it past them to do it, but I felt like they, they wrapped the story up nicely because we got a prequel to when they got the doll that didn't exist. And then a prequel of how the doll was made to get there. And then we ended it on a story of the Warrens having the doll in their possession. So I feel like the whole story's told unless they decide to just jump to something random in the middle. And I'm going to be honest, I love this trilogy. I'm not going to say they're the best movies ever made, but I'm a guy who hates sequels. And I felt like this trilogy was good from beginning to end. And I feel like, honestly, most modern horror franchises, I feel like the trilogies and the two films have been pretty good recently. Pretty good track record of it compared to like 80s movies and shit. <laughs> yeah, it tells a complete story. And I'm like you, I think, I think everything's... It's good to close it here. It is amazing that as a trilogy, it, it's actually good. Like you said, I totally agree with that as well. I really like the the ideas and the things played with in the Conjuring universe. Um, it makes me want to go back and watch the first two Conjuring films and The Nun just to see what else that fucking thread that goes through that I'm yeah. sure there's shit we're missing without going through all the movies before this episode. Yeah. I definitely want to watch The Nun again with new eyes because I saw it opening night in theaters and... I don't remember it being bad, but I don't remember it super impressing me either. And I've never tried to watch it again or even talked about it or thought about it even. And after hearing the way you felt going back and watching the first Annabelle movie, it makes me really want to do that with The Nun. Uh, I'm exactly the same for the same reasons. And I haven't seen The Nun since theaters. So I got to go back and watch it now just to see how it all pulls together. It's really neat, man. Um, we, we'd have to pull up the numbers, but you know, sequels and spinoffs are like the worst of the worst. Yeah. And this, this franchise on its own has made huge, huge return on investment. Honestly, anything James Wan has touched has made a shit ton of money off of a little money. Yeah. And he's using directors that aren't famous directors yet that made shorts that he discovered, which makes it even cheaper to make the movie. He knows how to get fucking horror movies made cheap. Yep. And it's been really fun kind of over the history of this podcast to watch how fast uh, Atomic Monster has spun up and everything yeah. that that they're producing and really neat to be one of the early directors we covered and say, man, I can't wait to see what he does. And he's fucking building an empire. <laughs> and I cannot wait till malignant comes out because I want to see how he handles the slasher. <laughs> but yeah, they're, they're really fun movies without being too hokey. I do want to say that yeah. like the third one is the, the most fun ride out of the three. Yeah. Um, it's I agree. A, it's a little less serious, so to speak than the first two. Honestly, I think it's because we're both huge conjuring fans and it feels like a conjuring movie <laughs> like throughout all the way through part of why this trilogy is so good though, is we had the same screenplay writer writing yep. all three movies and he got to direct the finale. And then we had James Wan who's in charge of the conjuring verse producing all three movies. And he's not a fake ass producer. He's an onset second director kind of producer, right? And that was really nice to have that because most horror franchises, you have random people directing every movie and most of them don't even belong there. They're 
famous for doing this and ended up making a horror movie, you know? So it was really nice. I did think it was interesting that online, everybody praises the second film the most. Like it gets praised like the witch does sometimes. And I don't think there was a bad movie out of the bunch here, but I will say that was my least favorite out of them just because I feel like you could have had the first one and the third one and skipped it and you wouldn't have had any problems with the story. You could have. But I guess that's a good way of making a prequel, though. Like, if you're going to make a retcon prequel, it's nice that you can tell a whole story, stand alone, and not affect any of the other movies, right? Like, that's pretty cool. Exactly. And uh, I, I think right now I'm stuck between the first one and the second one being tied for my favorite for different reasons. Like I said, the third one's just more of a fun ride. Yeah. Out of the third one, I'd with the way this shit has gone... I'd love something with the fairy man, the fairy man. Yeah. That whole segment in the movie is, is the, the most fun for me and the scariest for me. Yeah. I thought that was really cool. I would rather have a fairy man spinoff than I would the tall man from conjuring Two, which they're actually making. Oh, the, the crooked man. Oh, the crooked man. Yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah. Yep. I do have to say one thing real quick that, I, that I, I brought up and I need to come back to when, uh, when she does get the keys and goes to unlock the door, yeah. you notice that it's only like three of the locks require a key. And then the rest of them are just latches that she's sitting there sliding and turning. <laughs> <laughs> I just assumed that they had locks that you had to unlock before you could slide the latch, but you know, you might be right. I don't know, man. That, that one really, really bugs me. My favorite two were the first and the third. And it's because. I'll just start with the third one. It was really fun, like you said, and it felt like a Conjuring movie, and I enjoyed every part of it, and it was just fun to watch. However, the first movie scared the shit out of me (laughs) on multiple occasions and made me have to get a child to sleep in the bed with me to make me feel better. So I will say, I feel like the first is a standalone horror movie. It was a great fucking horror movie, even though I never saw it before the podcast because everybody wrecked it online. And I thought it was fucking great, and it actually freaked me out. I do know it's because I'm religious and I actually believe in demons. So that's probably why it scared me more than the other ones do. But like they all had that angle and the first one scared me. The second one was just a good movie. And the third one was a fucking fun movie. So as a whole, (laughs) I thought it was a really balanced trilogy. But like I said, it, it goes back to a lot of the same people making the movie, right? Yep. It keeps it all tied together. And, uh, it made it fun. And yeah, there's a, the first one. And I know a lot of this is the, the time, the, the time period that it's set in, but it, it actually has a bit of that old throwback feel to it as well. Yeah. That's a lot to do with the Rosemary's baby Easter eggs, basically. Right. Like that added to the vibe a lot. Yeah. Worked in Rosemary's baby. Let's fucking use it here. <laughs> um, I do want to point out. I wish I could pull up all three. Going back to the first one and, you know, what James Wan touches. Um, the first one had a budget of $6.5 million, Made a box office of 257 <laughs> They gave him $30 million for the second one. Jesus. $231 million is what it made. Okay. And then the third one, they dropped the budget back down to $15 million, but worldwide made $306 million. <laughs> It seems like most of his horror movies make in the 300 and something million range. Yeah. You know, when he makes a superhero movie, it makes $2 billion, but you know, <laughs> but yeah, like what James Wan touches does good. I have to do one thing real quick. Okay. Cause I always fuck this up. Coming back to something I meant to say earlier in the second movie, if you'll pay attention throughout the house, there are honeybees everywhere. Really? Yeah. They're in the wallpaper. They're in the stained glass. They're carved into the banister of the staircase. And it leads me to wonder what and I guess this is why it's there because it's B. 
what all did the parents oh. really do? What all did they try to fucking summon <laughs> to be able to get their girl back? Um, and I'm, I, I said I was going to come back to it and didn't. And uh, I wasn't going to let that happen this episode. <laughs> I thought it'd be fun because you brought up the real history of the Annabelle doll in the beginning. And uh-huh. I'd, I'd kind of like to close this out with something more recent about the real Annabelle doll. So a few years ago, Zach Bagans, Travel Channel, Ghost Adventures, he has his own museum of the occult in Las Vegas that he's put together uh, and opened up a few years ago. And there was an episode, I think it was a Halloween special they did where they had the, the Warrens It's their son-in-law that's inherited everything, right? Yeah. Tony Spear. Yeah. They had him, the travel channel approached him and had him come out and bring the Annabelle doll for their Halloween special. And it's kind of hokey because he's like carrying it in a briefcase and he puts on oven mitts when he gets it out and he sets it in a chair and he just tells everybody the one rule is you don't touch it. And of course, Zach Baggins, Baggins, however you pronounce his name, he grabs the fucking doll's foot. And what was weird about it is one, just watching that, it shows you how if they had used a real Annabelle doll in the movies, it would have just been a joke. Yeah. But in real life, that would be so much scarier. But seeing it on <laughs> Ghost Adventures, it just feels cheesy. And there ended up being this big public social media Twitter fight between the two of them after the episode about how how dare you touch the doll you were told not to. And Zach's like, whatever, you were just here for the money, blah, 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 blah. And he gave an interview or put up a YouTube video where he said, look, the Travel Channel contacted me. I told him I wasn't interested in parading the doll around. And they called back again and said, look, what's it going to take? And I smarted off X amount of dollars and two first class tickets. And that's what the Travel Channel agreed to. Because there's all this shit they were giving him online. It's like, look at what a fucking money grubbing dude this is. He even demanded a first class ticket for a fucking doll. And is like, no, 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 no. The Travel Channel offered that shit and they called my bluff. So I went ahead and did it. And the only reason I'm bringing all this up is to one book in this with the real Annabelle, but come back to the, you know, the Warrens and, you know, what do you believe? What do you not believe? You know, spirituality and the other side and ghosts and demons is a very personal thing for different people. You and I have very similar beliefs in that. So we get along and other people don't or they don't believe or they think that it's all made up for money. Just like some people think that the Warrens made it all up for money. But it doesn't really matter in this case, because look at some of the movies that we've gotten out of stuff like this. And they're fucking fun shit. So don't bash the origin. Watch it for what it's worth. And And I've been one of those people to be like, I don't like that person. I'm not going to watch that movie. And that's why I'm bringing this up because I don't think people should do like I've done in the past and just go ahead and prejudge and predetermine on shit because of the source material, you know, go along for the ride. And these movies make a fun ride when they shouldn't. It's a spinoff. Okay. It's going to (laughs) suck. It's sequels. Okay. It's definitely going to suck. Oh oh no, it's a prequel. Oh God. Now it's really going to (laughs) suck. And then it doesn't. Yeah. It's really cool. And, you know, I never met the Warrens. They're not alive to defend themselves anymore. I've seen evidence that some of it's hokey. Some of it might be true. Some of it might actually be hokey. There could be a little bit of column A, column B. I, if it's true that they worked with the church, I feel like they did do some stuff that religious people believed was true, right? Obviously, yeah. an atheist can think it's all made up, but, you know, <laughs> that's neither here nor there. I do get the vibe that Tony Sparrow, though, might just kind of be leeching off the past. And if you're supposed to keep Annabelle locked up in that holy glass with the prayers around it, then what the fuck was he doing carrying it in a briefcase with oven mitts on unless 
The briefcase was lined with Bible pages and the oven mitts was soaked in holy water from the River Jordan. Exactly. <laughs> it was some cheesy ass shit to see. Watch it be a, a different Raggedy Ann doll because he was too scared to touch it. <laughs> Just one off of Amazon or eBay. Oh, that would explain everything. Oh, but what you brought up is a really good point of something that's in the trailer for the new movie. The devil made me do it, which is going to be the third proper installment of the conjuring. And the line in there is people swear on a Bible. Every time they come to this courtroom saying that they believe in God, now it's time for us to show them they should believe in the devil as well. Yeah. And that's a great line in that movie. And like you said, if the church backed up even some of their shit, they were vetted to a certain degree. Yeah. And that movie's getting shit on a lot right now. I mean, people are like, I'm going to go see it. It looks pretty good. But I think it it sucks that they're like defending a murderer. But a lot of those people are coming from like a religious standpoint. And they don't they don't believe in anything, which I guess you could say by the same argument. If I do believe in demons, I'm coming from the other way. But you just got to remember these movies are based off of something somebody said true and then completely fictionalized versions of that story. All of the Conjuring verse movies, including the Conjuring movies that are supposed to be based off of true events, they add a lot of shit to entertain us. And I think it's entertaining. And I, I hope we get more good movies out of this uh, this franchise. Same. But anyways, that's it for the Annabelle Trilogy episode. So you guys are going to have to tune in on the next episode where we cover Master of Horror, John Carpenter. Okay, show me. Holy shit finally happening that's all we need the extra prep time as usual guys thanks for downloading the show and spreading the word please do not forget to rate and review us online and please please send us comments questions and suggestions to our email sbspodcast at gmail.com we would also love it if you could follow our twitter and instagram both at sbspodcast this might motivate us to use it more see you guys on the next one thanks for listening